And we are live. What's up, guys? Welcome to Fed It. Today, we're going to be talking about the killer clown, a.k.a. John Wayne Gacy. Let's get it right into it, guys. I was a special agent with Homeland Security Investigations, okay, guys? HSI. The cases that I did mostly were human smuggling and drug trafficking. No one else has these documents, by the way. Here's what Fed It covers. Dr. Lafredo confirmed lacerations due to stepping on glass. Murder investigation. You see him reaching in his jacket. You don't know. And he's positioning. Been on February 13, 2019. You're facing two counts of premeditated murder. Racketeering and Rico young, conspiracy. Young slime life here and after referred to as YSL. The defendants uh, was 6ix9ine. And then this is Billy Seiko right here. Now, when they first started, guys, 6ix9ine ran. Well, I'm a fed. I'm watching this music video. You know, I'm bobbing my head like, hey, this shit lit. But at the same time, I'm pausing. Oh, wait, who this? Right? Oh, who's that in the back? Firearms and violent crimes. AKA, Bushaisi violated. You're ordered to stay away from the victim. Trapper Bushaisi arrested after shooting at King of Diamonds, oh, Miami Strip Club, injured one this person. Is the, this is the one that, that's going to fuck him up because this gun is not traceable. Well, it happened at the gun range. Here's your boy, 42 Doug, right here on the left. Okay. Sex trafficking and sex crimes. They can effectively link him to paying an underage girl. I'm going to lock my fifth right, right. And well, the first bomb went off right here. Suspect to down a backpack at the site of the second explosion. Inspired by Al-Qaeda. Two terrorists, their brothers, the Zokar Sarnev and Tamer Lynn Sarnev. When the cartel shipped drugs into the country. As this guy got arrested for um, espionage, okay, trading secrets with the Russians for monetary compensation. The largest corrupt police bust in New Orleans history. The days of the police are gone. So he was in this bad boy. We're going to go over his past, the gang ties, so that this all makes sense. All right, we're back. What's up, guys? Welcome to Fed It, man. Sorry for the delay, guys. As you guys know, I had uh, this is a big episode today, and we got a lot to talk about. Before I get into the episode, though, I want you guys to introduce you to a special guest I got in the house helping me out behind the scenes. Hello, I'm Mia. Uh, a little bit about me. I run a talent management slash social media marketing agency. Uh, so a little bit of what that is right now is I'm helping freshmen get other college Yes. So she's helping us out right now. We're making a comeback on TikTok. So she's taking a bunch of the content on there because you guys know we're banned everywhere. So, um, yeah. Anyway, you guys can't hear. Hold on one second. Let me make sure. Let me make sure that the audio test, test, test. Uh, I can I, I can hear good. Can you guys not hear me? Her mic was off. Uh my bad. She was muted. You might have to introduce yourself again. My bad. Sorry, guys. I give myself a stupid bump for that one. Stupid. All right. Go ahead and introduce yourself again to the people. Okay. I'm Mia again. <laughs> <laughs> I, I uh, own a talent management slash social media marketing agency. Um, so a little bit of what that is right now with Fresh and Fit. I'm helping them with their TikTok and I help other influencers and et cetera. Cool. Yeah, guys. So she's running our TikTok right now. We have a couple of TikTok accounts, as you guys know. We are hated everywhere. So we're working on uh, getting back up on the tick of the talk, go viral again so that we can get canceled. But um, today's <laughs> episode, guys, we're going to be talking about John Wayne Gacy. But before I get into that, guys, quick analysis. I actually wrote down a bunch of notes, as you guys can see here, a whole bunch of notes, man. Right. And here's my new book, by the way. It's a, it's a Dragon Ball Z book that I take my notes in. The, the uh, Women Deserve Less book. It's not misogynist enough. Yeah, it, it ran out of pages. <laughs> I was writing down stuff furiously. Um, so anyway, 
Real quick, guys, I'm live on Anchor as well. Um, I'm Big Mo has helped me out with that. He's posting all the uh, content on Anchor. So if you guys want to go ahead and listen to me on the go on audio, go ahead and check me out on Anchor. It's Feta, It's Anchor.fm slash um, Feta1811, okay? Anchor.fm slash Feta1811. I'm on there on Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts, every single platform you guys listen to. I'm still there. Uh, but for Feta only, Fresh and Fit is over on Megaphone. Also, we're gonna ha- we're still t- selling tickets for the party, guys. The party's gonna officially be January fourteenth. It's gonna be here in Miami. We got a rooftop spot locked in. It's gonna be fucking awesome. Okay, guys. So our million party. We want you guys to show up. Um, so the way it's gonna go, guys, is we're gonna go ahead and make sure that we have a free meeting. So anyone that's in Miami that wants to meet us, we're gonna have a free meetup at a public location. You won't have to pay a dollar to meet us, but. Uh, if you want to come to the party and meet the girls and booze and all the other good stuff, you're going to have to pay, guys. It's, we have to put a price point on it because we're going to have a lot of celebrities there. We're going to have a lot of girls there. Obviously, we're going to have to make sure the festivities are good. Uh, the place that we went ahead and rented for you guys is going to be very expensive, but we're not really pulling any stops on this party. We want to make sure it is awesome. Um, it's going to pra- it's going to be one of the best parties in Miami. You know, um, we got Chris and a bunch of other guys on the team planning it out as well as Fresh. And uh, yeah, we're we're not pulling any punches. We're really trying to make it the best, guys. So it's gonna be a great time. Uh, and then what else here? Uh, cool. And then the reason why we're doing John Wayne Gacy today, guys, is I actually took a poll last week and I asked, hey, what do you guys want me to cover? And this one overwhelmingly won. So uh, I'm not surprised that you guys would want the episode that would take me so, some of the longest <laughs> time to research. I spent quite a bit of time on FedEx researching these cases, making sure that I speak from an educated standpoint because I don't just like watch the documentary, then just come on and do it. Like I actually watch it, internalize it, watch it again, then watch it again to retain, then to get, you know, get a bunch of other facts in so that I can speak in an educated fashion about it. And yeah, man, I hope you guys um, enjoyed this episode. I put a lot of work into it. I mean, uh, Mia can tell you herself, I was, what, how long was I researching this thing? Like all day? For days. I mean, not, not just today. You did this for days. Yeah. And you were taking notes up until the last minute, basically. Yeah, man. So everybody in the chat, R8 goes, now I see why you were late, Myron. Nah, man. We She just got here, you perverts, okay? So she literally just got here. I guess I'll read the chats real quick. Can you pull some of them up real quick, Mia? And then, I'll, and then yes. we'll get into that, uh, the episode. And we got a lot to go over, guys. This one's going to probably be at least 90 to two hours. Uh, 90 minutes to 120 minutes. Um, cool. So we got here. I see yeah. Disney G. Oh, no, you got it. Okay. Uh, Disney G goes five bucks. It did really good with Jeffrey Dahmer case. You're a great guy and I love you. Pause. Thank you so much, bro. Netflix and kill only OGs. Remember, yes. Any chance you could get Bounty Tank on the podcast? Uh, yeah, I was talking with him a couple weeks back. We just got to set up a day. Um, who else? We got Silhouette, 10 bucks. Mario, can you go over the Kalan Walker case? He's a rapper that just got sentenced 50 years to life over sexual assault allegations, no high profile, not a high profile case, but I think it'll make great content. Yeah, I, I gotta, uh, I'm trying to like, I'm trying to give the people what they want. So most people want serial killers and high profile cases, but if we end up where we got a little week, maybe I'll do that. Uh, Disney G, uh, no, read that one already. Got another one? Uh, yes, one sec. Uh, okay, even uh, thought of doing one on Chris Benoit. I have thought about Chris Benoit, but mm, if I have time, I'll do it because that's 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 a whole other thing. Uh, looking forward to this from Luke Red Pill Perry. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, I think that's it. That's it, right? Caught up? Mm-hmm. Cool. All right, guys. So we're going to get right into it, okay? Um, and I got all the tabs nice and organized here. So we're going to get into who was John Wayne Gacy, okay? John Wayne Gacy, born March 17, 1942, died May 10th, 1994, was an American serial killer and sex offender who raped, tortured, and murdered at least 33 young men and boys. Gracie regularly performed at children's hospitals and charitable events. Uh, as Pogo the Clown or Patches the Clown, personas he had devised, he became known as the Killer Clown due to his public services as a clown prior to discovery of his crime. So we'll just read that first, guys, and we'll go ahead and get into 
um, his background, okay? So we're going to be reacting to <clears throat> this documentary on John Wayne Gacy, Monster in Disguise, uh, and we're going to go through his upbringing here, right? Now, I want to give you all a warning real fast. I'm pretty confident that I might get hit with a copyright or whatever the hell while I'm playing some of these documentaries, even though I'm reacting to them and giving you guys um, some educated commentary here because people will be hating. So that's why I'm live streaming on Twitch as well. I'm on Twitch and I'm on YouTube. Uh, search Fresh and Fit on Twitch, guys. I'm live over there. So for some weird reason, this YouTube Twitch goes down. Sorry, this YouTube stream goes down. You guys can still catch me over there on Twitch. I repeat one more time for y'all. Okay. I'm about to start breaking down the case and reacting to two documentaries. If I get hit with a copyright or some crap like that, I will probably still be live on Twitch. So go ahead and open up another tab on Twitch just in case so you guys don't miss a second of this breakdown. I'm taking some risk here, but I got to give you all this content. It is what it is. Like I said before, I do fed it for the love, not necessarily for the money. So, um, yeah, um, I'm going to get into it. So we're going to go into John Wayne Gacy's background upbringing and family life and then last chat here elevated entertainment goes five bucks seems like a lot of these guys like messing with boys why girls be so scared we should be the ones on edge yeah <laughs> i guess so my friend um so let's <clears throat> and then of course there's one hater in here waldemore on says says oh yo there's then you know what dude if you don't want to watch it you don't have to if you there's been plenty of documentaries that's fine but i'm going to interpret and break down the documentaries give you guys a little bit more sauce but, you know, if you want to hate or whatever, you don't have to watch. I don't understand why people watch and talk shit. Have you thought about doing a case on D.B. Cooper? I have not. I have not. Um, and then last one, Million Dollar President. First time watching Fred at Live. Keep up the good work, Myron. Thank you so much. All right, guys, let's get into it. In the Chicago winter of 1942, John and Marion Gacy awaited the birth of their second child. The young couple already had a daughter, but John longed for a son to carry on the family name. On March 17th, he got his wish when Marion gave birth to a boy. They named him John Wayne after Marion's favorite movie star. And for some of you guys that, you know, been living under a rock or might not be American, John Wayne was very famous in like the old cowboy movies, etc. Hence why uh, the name. The Gacy children, including a third child, Karen, born two years later, grew up in this modest bungalow in a blue collar neighborhood. Now, the reason why I'm putting um, emphasis on this, guys, is because a lot of serial killers, as you guys know, from like Jeffrey Dahmer and Gacy, come up from fucked up backgrounds, okay? So I want you guys to really pay attention to this. I'll be stopping it momentarily to give you guys some commentary. Um, but this, this is very important because it's going to lay the foundation as to why uh, Gacy becomes the man that he does later on in life. Their father, the son of Polish immigrants and a World War I veteran, worked as a machinist building control panels for utility companies. And just so you guys know, Pol um, Chicago has probably the biggest population of Polish people in the United States, if I'm not mistaken. It's consistently been number one, uh, to my knowledge. So huge Polish population there. It's a breadwinner, so that's what I think he thought his respective duties were to bring home and provide for us a home and food, and but he wasn't the nurturer. Gacy Sr. was an uncompromising man who demanded obedience from his children, especially his only son. He expected Johnny to be like the other boys who played stickball, climbed trees, and fished. 
So he wanted his son to be a traditionally masculine boy. Okay, guys. Now, remember, this is back in the day. This isn't nowadays in 2022 where it's like, oh, yeah, everyone is equal and all this other bullshit. As you can see, he was a traditionally masculine man working, had a, um, you know, a manual labor job. He was, uh, you know, the sole provider and the wife was a homemaker. So he wanted his son to be a man. I mean, hell, that's why he wanted a son in the first place. And this is what ends up happening. The father was an avid fisherman and tried to teach his son the sport, but the boy had no interest. Instead, Johnny would much rather cook with his sisters or garden with his mother. What? When he so obviously, you know that's gonna that's gonna piss pops off, right? <laughs> so he's like, "What the fuck?" You know what I mean? Wanted to work on flower beds that he put in around the house. It was like you know the sissy thing to do, oh, and Dad no. was very vocal about that. John wanted his father to know, Dad, I love you, I am your son, but please let me be Johnny Gacy. Also, I want to let you guys know that his father used to ridicule him, he used to call him sissy boy, he used to call him a bunch of uh, effeminate derogatory terms uh, oh, because Gacy didn't play like sports, he wasn't like a regular boy, like he preferred to do stuff with his sisters and his mom versus with the father. He didn't like the outdoors. He didn't like doing manual labor, um, which is interesting because you guys are going to see his career path later on, what he ends up doing. But um, in his childhood, his dad was not necessarily proud of him. So, and he was always ridiculing him. The father would often ridicule Johnny in front of his sisters and other children in the neighborhood. It's just a constant stream of you wimp you know you're not going to be anything you can't do this what are you one of the girls taunts from a father toward a son can be devastating while johnny's father was rigid and emotionally distant the boy developed a special bond with his mother mom was a uh, confident you could go with to mom and tell her a lot of things uh now um, Gacy had a very close relationship with his mom, which you guys are going to see later on here, how he was able to start his business through his mom. Uh, that you couldn't talk to dad about. And I think my dad felt threatened by that, felt, felt like they were keeping secrets from him. Marion was... And that's his sister, by the way, speaking, guys. He looks guys. just like her. <laughs> yeah, they look very similar, right? Homemaker. But her husband acted as if he ran the household. The couple argued frequently about everything, from chores to child rearing. She tried so hard to keep the family together, knowing that her husband drank. And when he drank, he went into rages and he usually uh, turned on John. And that's understatement. His dad, guys, was an alcoholic. You're about to see right now. After his shift on the assembly line, Johnny's father would escape to the basement where he would drink brandy before supper. Marion and the children would wait at the dinner table in fear and silence until he climbed the stairs drunk. If the children misbehaved, he would spank them with a razor strap. We actually learned how to toughen up against it. And John especially, he would not cry. He would not cry. And sometimes I think that made Dad angry. Johnny not only felt alien. He was drinking that brandy and he didn't put, co put Coca-Cola in it like Fresh did in Romania <laughs> with Tristan. <laughs> you guys didn't see a podcast we did with Tristan. Tristan got some like top shelf brandy, gave it to Fresh. 
and Fresh put Coca Cola in it, man. That's and an insult. Yeah, it was it was actually <laughs> hilarious. Um, and he actually ended up getting pretty lit on air, but that's a whole other thing. He needed at home. He longed to be accepted by his classmates, but a congenital heart condition prevented him from playing with the other kids. I was wrestling around with some older kids, and I and that's him right there, guys. This is an interview from 1992 that he did with um, with an FBI profiler, very famous Robert Wrestler. Okay. Um, and this is one of the few media, uh, interviews that he's done prior to him being executed in 94. Passed out and I remained. Un- and I want you guys to pay very close attention to how he speaks, how calm he is, etc. Okay. Um, because you guys are going to see little excerpts of him being interviewed throughout this uh, podcast. Conscious for about 10 or 15 minutes. We went to the doctor and they said I had an enlarged bottleneck heart. So I was more or less like a sickly kid. Gacy's father expressed no sympathy for his son and saw the heart condition as one more failure. He pressured the boy to do well in school. Johnny disappointed his father even more when he fell behind in his studies because he was at home sick so often. So not only was he disappointing because he didn't necessarily play sports, he wasn't out doing outdoor activities, he wasn't fishing and stuff like that. He was spending more time with his mom and his sisters, cooking and cleaning versus um, being out doing manual labor with his father. He also sucked at school, guys. So his dad was never really um, proud of him. You know, he always tried to seek his father's approval but could never get it, okay? And there's about to be another bombshell dropped here in a second. In 1954, when he was 12, Johnny made his first real attempt at fitting in with the other boys when he joined the Boy Scouts. So finally, he does something that is masculine. He earned merit badges in wilderness survival and campfire cooking. But despite his sense of belonging and achievement, Johnny knew he was different from the rest of the troop. The only other person who recognized this was his best friend, Barry Bashelli. One afternoon while playing in his bedroom. This is crazy. This is crazy. Him and his, so him and his best friend are playing in the bedroom, okay? Let's see what happens. Johnny shared a secret with his friend. Johnny had his mother's silk panties and bra what? sitting in a bag in this closet. What? I was astounded. I said, Johnny, what are you doing with those things? What? And um, he said to me, he said, I wonder if I ever dressed up as a woman, how I would look. What the? Oh, shit! Oh, shit! So... As you guys can see, even from a young age, he was sexually confused, okay? And this is going to be a precursor to things that occur later on. Young Gacy was deeply confused about his sexuality, but there was no one to help him, so he buried his secret deep inside. By the time he entered high school, the young man had learned to hide his confusion. John dated several girls and attended school dances with them. But neither his grades nor his health improved. In 1960, while attending Prosser Vocational High School, John was learning the printing trade. All right, so back then, guys, right? I know some of you guys are like, printing? What the hell is that? Well, guys, back in the day, stationery used to be a thing. Reading newspaper, writing things down like I currently do right now. Like, it wasn't all typing and texting and uh, using keyboards, you know? I mean, even typewriters were like a brand new thing back then. So, um, 
So this was a very good profession to get into back in the day, guys, because people, that's how they got their news. There was no social media. There was no phones. There was none of that stuff. So if you didn't watch it on the news, you didn't listen to it on the radio, or you didn't have the paper, you weren't informed on what the hell was going on. So this looked like a promising career until... He had several fainting spells in shop class. His teachers agreed that he would never be able to work with machinery. So he kept fainting from doing the machinery, and then bam, that's another, you know, big... Because of his heart John condition. dropped out. He had disappointed his father yet again. Another failure. I couldn't get along with my father. I mean, he was just overbearing. I was dumb and stupid, never would amount to anything. And so I just took off and this the hell with it. In 1964, when John was 22, he accepted a job as a shoe salesman in Springfield, Illinois. The All right, so we're going to fast forward here, guys. So we got the basic, you know, concept. So we know, right? So let's say, what's the takeaways from this? Right? He grew up in a pretty much an abusive household, right? Where his father, he can never get his father's approval. He's sexually confused. He doesn't know what he's necessarily attracted to. Doesn't know if he wants to dress up as a boy or a girl. Um, he, he tries to do things, but fails, right? He tries to join uh, printing, fails. He tries to play sports, can't do it because of his heart condition. His father is chronically upset with him. His father's an alcoholic and he can't really get his approval. So, um, so he ends up getting some odd jobs, etc. Now we're going to fast forward, guys, to another chapter in his life where he moves. Okay, he has his first son with his first wife, with his first wife, and this is the first time his son is at his father's actually happy. How old was he when he had his? First uh, son? I think at this point he's in his twenties. First time John saw pride in his father's so, eyes. So he has his first son, guys, and now his dad is finally somewhat happy with him, right? He was happy when he saw my brother settle down and get married and have a family. He was happy. He, it was like John reached the ultimate with that. that. Civic leader in okay, so now we're going to fast forward. He becomes an adult and he uh, becomes a civic leader. So let's get into this. Springfield, Illinois, and by all accounts, had a promising future. But the ambitious family man was hiding a sexual compulsion that threatened to ruin him. In 1966, John, his wife Marlene, and their infant son moved to Waterloo, Iowa, a small town about 100 miles north of Des Moines. John's father-in-law owned three Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurants in Waterloo. Business was booming, and he needed a manager. So at 24, his son-in-law began learning the restaurant business. John loved being the boss and insisted that his employees and friends call him Colonel. <laughs> what? What? So as you guys can see, right? What the fuck? So he's in his mid-20s now. He's got a wife. He's got a kid. He's living in Iowa, uh, you know, another state over from where he grew up. And he's managing three different KFCs that his wife's father owns. All right? So he's, he's killing it right now. You know what I'm saying? He's doing pretty well for himself. So let's uh, see what happens next. You want to be able to control people. He loved the idea that he could um, tell people, this is what I want you to do. I'm the boss. Which is why he loved referring to himself as Colonel, which you guys are going to see a trend here, okay? Where serial killers love, a lot of the times, love dominance, they love control. They're, a lot of times they didn't have control earlier in their life. So when they finally do get it, they don't know how to respond. We, we went over this with Jeffrey Dahmer. You know, he would, you know, he had a serious abandonment issues with his mother and his father. 
And when he finally did get a, a companion to hang out with him, he didn't want them to leave. And he would, you know, he tried drugging them. That didn't work. He killed them. And he ended up murdering, you know, a bunch of uh, young men in the process. But a lot of serial killers have a serious um, need for control. All right. So uh, let's keep running this. John put in 16-hour days, but his commitment to the JCs never faltered. He was soon considered the most valuable new member in the Waterloo chapter. So now he's getting into politics. I think probably it's just John's personality. Uh, he was very ambitious and wanted to be loved by everybody and liked by everybody and accepted, and it, it was just his way. Local JC president Charles Hill and real quick, guys, for you guys might be wondering, what the hell is a JC? Um, a JC, guys, is basically United States Junior Chamber, also known as the JCs, JCs, or JCI USA, is a leadership training, service organization, and civic organization for people between ages of 18 and 40. It is a branch of Junior Chamber uh, International. Areas of emphasis are business development, management skills, individual training, community service, and international connections. So obviously, he's becoming... Um, you know, kind of a, a leader in the in the community, okay? And this is going to be paramount, guys, as to how he was able to commit these crimes for so long without being caught, all right? Uh, you know what? We can hit some of these chats real quick. Uh, go back to my park goes $2. Do a little Dirk recent case. He has another case? Or are you, are you talking about the one from Atlanta with King Von? Uh, Dang board, 20 bucks. I'm such a huge fan of this. The amount of work and research you put into this is crazy. Big props, my guy. Absolutely. You know, for all the haters, you're just reacting to a documentary. Well, there's a lot of... Uh, <laughs> Insightful commentary, my friends, as well. Hey, yo, is that Ethan Klein? It probably is, bro. Shout out to Ethan D. Klein. Uh, who else do we got? Uh, Sabas Casarubius goes, hey, Ahi Myron, can you recover cover the rapper SPM case? I don't know who that is. Uh, he was a very famous in, like, the Cholo community. Okay. Like, the hood community. Okay. Um, I believe he's from the Valley. I'm not totally sure. Mm. Or, or somewhere neck of the woods. somewhere south, I know. That, that's <laughs> the only reason that I know of SPM. I'm not out here listening to Cholo rap. Yeah. Que <laughs> onda, wey? Que onda, wey? But I think he... So he went to prison, and I think they say, if I'm not mistaken, they say that it wasn't a fair trial or that he was innocent or something like that is what they claim for cool. SPM. Gotcha. Anybody else? That we got here? Uh, yes. Let's see. And then we got, sounds like autogenophilia. Okay. I looked it up. Uh, it's derived from the Greek word love of oneself as a woman. So oh, okay. It's, yeah. It's the term coined for a male's propensity to be sexually aroused by the thought of himself as a female. Okay. That's what that sounds about Shout right. out to the research <laughs> from Mia. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what else do we got here? I think that's it. Caught up? Cool. All right. Let's get back to the, to the doc, guys. Hope you guys are enjoying this. Do me a quick favor. Like the video, man, because this took a lot of research, took a lot of time to make. So, uh, you know, the only thing I ask, guys, is that you go ahead and like the video, subscribe to the channel. You don't have to donate a dollar, but I appreciate um, everything that you guys do donate. Like I said, this channel isn't necessarily to make money. It's more to, uh, you know, educate you guys and do something that I miss doing working in law enforcement. It all makes sense now. Hank Hill didn't want Bobby to follow that same path. <laughs> okay, fair enough was impressed with John's charm. And, and listen to Eddie right there. Eddie, four, five, six goes, five bucks. Smash the like button, Myron. You the man, keep it, keep it up. You killing it. Thank you, bro. Powers of persuasion. The JCs appointed him chairman of their membership drive. And talk about a membership chairman that no holds barred. I mean, he just did everything he could do to get new members. And, and he did it. He did the job. Gacy lured men into joining the JCs by inviting them to the Clayton House Motel, 
where he screened illegal stag films and hosted orgies with prostitutes. Oh man. What? So as you guys can see, what the fuck? The sexual deviance is starting to grow and um, blossom, okay? So he's over here bringing the prostitutes, watching stag films, etc. RT Louisiana goes, how about Sam Little? Keep up the good work. I will do Sam Little. For you guys that are wondering, Sam Little has the most confirmed kills of any serial killer in U.S. history. I think it was something like 93 or something like that, but the FBI was only able to confirm 60-plus of them. Um, he killed people for decades, and I will cover him too. Good good, uh, good suggestion. Ever thought about doing Nipsey Hustle case? I can in the future, uh, Haitian Jack. And then as I, Isaiah James goes, Myron, big love from Australia. I just want to say I appreciate all your hard work. All these sickos seem like they're from Wisconsin. Yeah, they're from the Midwest, bro. All the weirdos are from there. <laughs> Homie was tired again. Clown. Fresh as dog. dog. (laughs) (laughs) Where did they even get that picture? (laughs) He signed up 20 new members. John's sexual romps also carried over into his marriage with the full participation of his wife, Marlene. After an evening out, they would often swap spouses with other couples. So he was a swinger slash a cuck. When John's sister, Karen, came in from Chicago for a visit, her brother and sister-in-law revealed their little bedroom secrets. And, and just to make this very clear for y'all, bro, this is the 60s, guys. This type of stuff, watching stag films, which is pornography, essentially, right? Taboo pornography, you know, bringing prostitutes in, you know, doing um, swinger parties, you know, cuckoldry. This is all forbidden stuff, guys, in the 60s. Like, the United States was a much different place in the 60s than it is now. Nowadays, you say that you do this shit, no one bats an eye. But back then, it was a big deal. So for his sister to find this out was like, what the hell is going on here? Like, bruh. Oh, shit! Oh, shit! Oh, shit! But this is just the beginning, my friends. He said, sometimes we don't always go home with the same persons we came with. I really thought it was a joke. But when it came time to go home, he took somebody else home to their house. That was the first time I felt I didn't know my brother, that I didn't know him. And I definitely, you can imagine how my um, thoughts diminished about this sister-in-law. All right, so we're going to fast forward here to now the sexual deviance starts to grow, guys. And it grows into something far more nefarious. Lust for teenage boys. So now this develops, you know, into essentially pedophilia. One afternoon, while Marlene and the kids were away, John invited over 15-year-old Donald Voorhees, who's fine. Okay, what we're about to listen to right now is graphic, guys. If, you know, obviously cover your ears if you want, or, you know, if your discretion is advised, want to give you all this warning. Um, uh, but yes, we're going to get into uh, his first arrest here. Father was a JC and an Iowa state senator. Gacy asked the teenager if he had ever watched a stag film. When he said no, John set up the projector in his basement. He got Donald drunk to lower his inhibitions, then forced himself on the boy. Young Voorhees engaged in oral sex with Gacy. Afterwards, John hinted that he had mob connections back in Chicago. He threatened the teenager and paid him $50 for his silence. I don't know what's up with this $50 thing. Jeffrey Dahmer paid the same exact thing. <laughs> so I, I guess that's like the, the enticing number. That's the enticing number right there. 
Um, and guys, just so you know, um, this is what he did a lot of the time. So as you guys know, he's obviously in the JC. So that insulates him a little bit where he's in a more trusted position. And this guy being a kid, what does he do? Oh, I'm from Chicago. I know people out there, you know, I can go ahead and get you touch blah, blah, blah. So the, and so obviously the kid is like scared, like, oh shit, I better not say anything because this guy can get me jammed up. And on top of that, it's embarrassing. So a lot of male victims, a lot of times don't go to the police for that very reason. And not to mention guys. This happened in the 60s, which was a time where, you know, homosexuality was not accepted whatsoever. Okay, Um, and we're going to get into that as well, as far as like the uh, climate for the gay community back in the 60s and 70s. And also why that was critical to Gacy's ability to avoid detection for so long. Uh, Frank Baltimore goes, Joseph Roy, uh, Joe Metheny, American serial killer and rapist from Baltimore, Maryland area. Please do this case Um, again. I, I will do cases, guys, based on what the people want. So if I get enough people requesting it, I'll definitely do it. Uh, Deron Hall, would you do the Snoop murder trial? I lived through it, but I don't know much about it. Um, well, I mean, he got acquitted, man. Uh, uh, can you make a video on the different Mexican cartels? I can in the future. Yes, yes, I will do that because I that was actually what I specialized in when I was uh, an agent myself. Uh, Montreal rather goes, can you do C-murder? Uh, potentially, potentially. If enough people ask for it, I'll do it. The kid... Over the next South Park Mexican <laughs> period of time, <laughs> that's what SPM stands uh, for. Just was beside himself, couldn't uh, do anything. Did not go to the police right away. Um, felt, as Casey had said, that in fact nobody would believe him. In March 1968, the and just so you guys know, um, fifty dollars in 1968 was approximately worth three hundred ninety-two dollars in 2022. Okay, uh, according to inflation. So that that's what it was. So basically he paid him 400 bucks to be quiet. Major finally broke down and revealed everything to his family. His parents pressed charges against Gacy, who was arrested and charged with sodomy. Oh, there you go. FBI, open up! Police showed up at his place. You know what time it was. Uh, Fidel Castro, 50 bucks. Shout out to you, bro, <laughs> from the grave. He goes, for the impact you've had in my life, though it's a bit late for me concerning my age. Thank you. I consume your content every day like water. P.S. I just blocked the bimbo that I was going to have a date with for showing fishy and masculine traits. Love you. Hey, man, you got to you gotta let these girls know what time it is. Do you miss working with the feds from Maddie C. Vlogs? Yes, I do, my friend. Every day I do, which is why I do this channel. Um, so, so here we go, guys. So he gets charges pressed against him uh, in 69, okay, from this guy, Voorhees, uh, the 15-year-old. He's out there terribly. He was at first very, very uh, vigilant in his protection of himself and his family. He was one of these, it was one-on-one. It wasn't me who did this. I wouldn't have done it. The kid's a liar. Gacy was convinced he could outsmart his accusers and insisted he be given a lie detector test. He failed. Oh, man. Yeah, good job. Denied. Definitely take an L on that one. You thought you are smarter than the system, bro. But with that said, polygraphs are kind of BS. You can beat polygraphs simply from like, because it's not really a lie detector test, guys. It's more of a, it's a test that um, measures your bodily functions while you're being asked questions. So, you know, it measures your perspiration, your heart rate, a bunch of your, your glands, all this other stuff. So it basically gives a monitor of like what it thinks the likelihood is that you're lying and or deception as they would say. So there's a bunch of weirdos out there that can lie with a straight face and pass lie detector tests. A lot of times they're sociopaths. Uh, But in this case, he failed. Investigators even joked that the only truthful answer came when he was asked his name. (laughs) Because just so you guys know, when they give you a lie detector test, they ask you a bunch of questions like um, what they call like, 
um, screening questions. And those questions kind of see where your, where your baseline is. They ask what your name is, where were you born, questions that are easy that you're not going to lie about. And after that, once they have the baseline of what your bodily functions are like when you tell the truth, then they go ahead and start pressing you with certain questions to see if you're being truthful. He felt that his world had crumbled. People would see him coming. They didn't want to be around him. And I think it drastically affected his personality. During the investigation, other teenage boys came forward with allegations of sexual abuse. Gacy pleaded guilty to the sodomy charge, but insisted that 15-year-old Voorhees willingly engaged in oral sex with him. So now he goes ahead and says, oh, no, it was it was consensual, blah, 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 blah. Bro, they're still underage. And you guys are going to see a trend here that Gacy has some serious issues with taking accountability for his crimes. OK, um, which is a, a typical, you know, trait of a sociopath, narcissist, borderline personality disorder and a bunch of other um, mental issues that he has that are, you're going to come uh, and find out here in a second. This young individual made the charge at me. He claims that he was sexually abused by me. And in essence, he was blackmailing me for it. Now, what a... He was blackmailing me for it, bro. Boiled down to was oral copulation. And it was uh, consensual. See how he's down, you know, he's, he's kind of like, you know, trying to mitigate the severity of what he did. Right. To make himself feel a little bit better because he knows deep down what he's doing is wrong. He knows what he's doing is abusive to, chi to children. He knows it's reprehensible behavior. He, he knows that what he's doing is wrong. OK, he's and the thing is, is that he's trying to cope with it in his head and saying it's consensual. He was blackmailing me, blah, 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 blah. And there's a trend of him doing this uh, throughout his life. And when he's asked questions about his crimes, a lot of the times he goes ahead and tries to admonish his victims like, oh, they were all stupid queers anyway, calling them, you know, homosexual derogatory terms to make himself feel better. And, um, you know, he's also fairly homophobic, which you guys are going to see here in a second. The judge didn't see it that way and gave Gacy the maximum sentence, 10 years at the state penitentiary in Anamosa. For sodomy. He would never see his wife, Marlene, or his children again. Gacy arrived at the prison in December 1968. It's like he accepted it. Like, I did the crime, so I get the time. And I mean, he didn't say anything, but just he didn't break down. Again, he didn't cry. He did not cry. We all cried, including my father. Even behind bars, Gacy aggressively pursued all of the social outlets available to him. He not only made friends with fellow prisoners, but he mingled with the guards, social workers, and even the warden. And the thing is, is that he was a very charming, charismatic guy, guys. There's no way that you're going to be able to kill 33 people and lure them to your place and do all the things that he was able to do if you're not a charming, charismatic, you know, friendly, disarming individual. You know, he, you know the way he speaks, his tonality when he speaks, uh, the cadence in how he speaks, him being a little bit chubbier, him being a clown in his off time, right? Him do, being, you know, being a community leader, being involved in politics, being a public figure, saying I have these types of connections, etc. Um, this all plays into him being able to create a certain persona, which people would never uh, know what is what's behind it. OK, and you guys are going to see here what he does in prison. Very smart what he does in prison. You're going to see how he's able to get out early. Within eight months, Gacy landed a job as head cook in the prison kitchen. He loved trying out new recipes for the inmates. 
I can say unreservedly that the quality of the food improved dramatically. One thing John was, was a very, very, very fine cook. And he understood something that traditionally folks who cook in prisons don't understand. He understood the use of spices. In December 1969, a TV film crew visited the prison to shoot a segment called... Look at that. He got, he's in there for sodomy, but he's getting interviewed on television, guys. What the hell? <laughs> you know? Was he already a murderer at the point of this video? No, Did not yet. Know? Not okay. yet. This, the, he, the only crime he had been convicted of at this point is sodomy of that underage um, kid, uh, the 15-year-old. Yeah. Christmas at Anamosa. In this rare footage... The head cook spoke with pride about the meal he was preparing for his fellow inmates. The men, with the exception of the, the turkey, which they get a generous proportion of, and the pumpkin pie that will be served, are allowed to take as much as... Shots to say in the center of the fucking... <laughs> the house, by the way. He goes, uh, he was putting fruity pebbles in their food. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, shout out to Marquette, shout out to the, to the Saints, guys. Go ahead and uh, subscribe to his YouTube channel, The Saint in the Center, man. Good dude. Very intelligent, bright individual, man. They want to eat. The only requirement is that you eat what you take. After his interview, Gacy joined the prison choir in singing a carol. But this holiday season would be John's worst. So just see, you guys can see here, what is he doing, man? He's becoming a, you know, staple member in the prison, right? He's the cook. He's in the choir. He's doing all these things to make himself seem like a good individual, all right? Which ends up working to his benefit. But obviously, he's going to get some tragic news here in a second. Back in Chicago, his father was battling cirrhosis of the liver. On Christmas morning, John Stanley Gacy died. The news. And as you guys know, cirrhosis of the liver occurs, you know, for heavy drinkers. You know, he's drinking all this alcohol, drinking brandy every single night after a tough night at the mill. Of course, you know, uh, he's going to be he's going to succumb to that at some point where that alcohol is going to fuck up his liver. Who's devastated his son. He was convinced that his father died of shame over his sodomy conviction. So as you guys can see, he can never live it down. He always feels like he's disappointing his father. He's in prison for sodomy. He, you know, molested a young boy. He fails at everything he does. Um, he doesn't know where, where, where sexuality stands, etc. His dad is disappointed. Him. And then on top of that, his dad dies while he's in prison. So you can only imagine uh, the guilt and disappointment he has. And he's like, damn, did I, was I responsible for getting for, you know, stressing my dad out and killing him? So you think he was actually trying to make his dad proud? Like, you think I think so. I think he honestly wanted validation from his father and he just wasn't able to get it. It would explain why he would do such crazy things. I mean, if he didn't care for his validation, I guess we can think of like the average gay person. Like they just their father's disapproval doesn't turn them into yeah. serial killers. Yeah, yeah, no, because they course. don't care. Right? And he went off so the rails sense. after his dad died. And you guys are going to see this here in a sec. Um, why don't prominent serial killers exist today? Um, well, because we got modern technology and them niggas get caught quick. <laughs> uh, Masotomy. Okay, thank you so much for the Masotomy uh, silhouette. Edgar J. Renova L. John Gacy. I see what you did <laughs> I there, sir. I thought about that, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And then Michael Trostein goes, W. Candice. All right, thanks. Uh, anything else? Yes, there's a couple more. Uh, Trostein, we got that one. A lot of Trostein. Big ones. Kahuna, Mo Burger, and my girl's Tiny Taco. Okay, all right. <laughs> uh, do Young Moose, Baltimore, Years of Cops, Corruption. Okay. Uh, Perfect Tense took all the money they love for me. I'm sleeping in Fresh's doghouse now. Okay. Interesting. 
Um, and then top broke Jew. Shout out to you, Michael Chilstein. <laughs> All right, let's keep going here. He felt like he stripped him of any dignity. He was remorseful about that, uh, that he disappointed him in such a way that it killed him. And a lot of times we'd sit and we'd talk and I'd say, John, you didn't. It was a disease. Dad's drinking is what created his death. Gacy's grief. Now you guys are going to see this grief turn into rage. If quickly turned to rage, which he took out on inmates he suspected were gay. One afternoon while walking back to his cell, he spotted two prisoners having oral sex. Gacy kicked one of the men in the face, then returned to his cell. So as you guys can see, he's gay himself. He's bisexual, and he self and he admits that he's bisexual in several interviews, guys. Or, or in that interview that he did with uh, Robert Sessler from the FBI, he admits that he's bisexual. However, he still has extremely homophobic tendencies from you know growing up with his father and never being able to uh, appease his dad. So uh, very strange. There was someone who was struggling with an inner demon that did not have to do with hating homosexuals, but with being attracted to them. And John hated prison every day that he was there. After his father's death, a lot of hates, including that one, became much more powerful in his personality. On June 18, 1970, prison officials released him on good behavior. He had served 16 months of his 10-year sentence. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. So he gets sentenced to 10 years, guys, and barely does a year and a half. So he gets wow. out on good behavior from, uh, keep in mind, he's, you know, he's doing the choir. He's cooking. He's friends with the prison guards and the warden. He's a model, you know, he's a model inmate. He's over here, you know, sh shaking hands and kissing babies and being that dude. You know what I mean? So, of course, they're going to let him out early. And uh, what you guys are about to see here is, is some shocking shit. Check this out. Gacy returned to his boyhood home, Chicago, where he began to rebuild his life. All right. So he returns back to Chicago, right? So now we got that chapter out of the way where, you know, his upbringing, his father, etc. Now we're going to go into another documentary here, guys, called uh, John Wayne Gacy, Devil in Disguise, which this, was, this one came out recently. This was in 2021, which, guys, I might get hit with a copyright on this one again. If you're watching on YouTube, open up another uh, tab on Twitch, guys. And, you know, if this goes down on YouTube, we're still going to keep going on Twitch. All right. So just a warning. We covered the first portion. We're good. We're in the clear. But open up another tab, Fresh and Fit on Twitch. Check me out over there, guys. Again, it's Fresh and Fit on Twitch in case I go ahead and get hit with the fucking uh, on YouTube for playing this thing. All right, guys. So. Now we're going to talk about what happens once he's out on parole and some shocking information uh, as to why he should have never been on parole in the first place. That would have been extremely helpful to the communities in which he uh, eventually landed. After fooling authorities that, oh, he's fine, he's cured, Gacy was free again to come back to Chicago. But Gacy was not fine at all. The Iowa State Psychopathic Hospital, it was called at the time, did a complete workup of Gacy as a sex offender before the sentencing in that case, which essentially says this guy is a sexual psychopath. Look at that. Psychopathic. <laughs> Ran right there, man. 
There is absolutely no treatment of any kind. The patient is unlikely to benefit from known medical treatment. Uh, Antisocial personality 301.7, which is interesting because as you guys saw when he was in prison, he was a social butterfly. He was over here cooking for people, doing news interviews, you know. But that's what psychopaths do. Exactly. Exactly. They're able to put on that mask, baby, and fool everyone. Um, That is going to cure this guy. And you can see here, routine laboratory EEG and EKG and skull spine films were essentially normal psychological test results, a sociopathic personality disturbance, antisocial rejection. So look at this, guys. The documentation was there when they let him out. Uh, Fast Like Bobby 54 goes, are you familiar with George Jung and his kingpin case? No, I am not, my friend. George Zimmerman trial, I never learned how he won. Uh, he basically got uh, found with the, uh, you know, he was found as self-defense. Florida has a, is a stand-your-ground state. rest of his life, he's going to remain a dangerous. The most striking aspect of uh, the sexual predator. Gacy's psychiatric evaluation clearly, clearly said this man will continue to commit crimes. Somebody somewhere really screwed the pooch on this one. So they do a full psych eval and they figure out that he's not rehab. He's going to perp- more than likely continue to commit the crimes. He's unstable he's a psychopath etc and they still let him out in less than two in less than a year and a half guys crazy and let the killing spree ensue because they had every warning sign guys we got 2600 you guys watching right now total 2300 y'all on youtube do me a quick favor guys like the video subscribe to the channel because we can get this stream taken down at any time man um and yeah please like the goddamn video and you know what someone i just saw asked for a quick summary so before we get into him getting back into chicago let's go ahead and do a quick little summary here of what the hell happened okay so for those of you that are just joining the stream today we're breaking down john wayne gacy aka the killer clown okay one of the most prolific serial killers of all time killed 33 people um through the 1970s okay uh so we went over his family uh life right when he was a child he was born in uh, in the 40s, I believe, right? Born March, I think, check his birthday for me one time. I think it was something in the, like March something, I think. Yeah. Okay, Mia will get it. But anyway, he was born in the 40s, guys. Ends up going uh, over to Iowa. He has a child, has a wife. 42. Uh, 42. He was born, what day? March 17th. March 17th, 1942. Thank you so much for the fact check. Right? So he's born in 42 to a two-parent household. His father's abusive, alcoholic. Uh, as a as a laborer, his mom is a homemaker. He ends up not, you know, playing sports and or going fishing, doing traditionally masculine things. His father's disappointed in him. He's confused sexually. He dress up dresses up in his mother's clothing. You know, not sure if he's a boy or a girl. He ends up joining the Boy Scouts. Doesn't last too long in that. He tries printing, fails at that as well. But he does end up getting married and having a child. His father finally starts to approve of him. While he's uh, in Iowa, he starts to get into some sexual deviance. You know. He's a member of the JCs. He does some, you know, wife swapping, some, you know, how do I say this? What, what, what the swinger parties? Uh, <laughs> yeah. He's watching stag films, etc. Getting prostitutes. Then he goes ahead and messes with a 15-year-old boy. Um, they get involved in some sexual activity. He ends up getting arrested for that. The family presses charges. He goes to jail for sodomy. He claims that it was consensual and it was only oral sex, which is clearly a lie. Um, he gets convicted. 
Uh, he gets sentenced to 10 years. However, he only does about a year and a half on good behavior. While he's in prison, he's the head cook. He's out here, you know, uh, being a positive member. He does have some homophobic tendencies, though. He did kick someone for giving oral sex to another inmate. So even though he himself is bisexual, he is extremely homophobic, and he and he tries to repress these feelings from being uh, disappointing his dad for so much. His father ends up dying while he's in prison, and it's, it, it destroys him. Um, so he gets out of prison, guys, and he starts to rebuild his life. He moves back to Illinois after being in Iowa, and that's where we are now. So let's get into this chapter of the John Wayne wow. Gacy. That was a great uh, summary. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. I tried. Off the top of the dome, too. Pause. Yeah. Oh, my bad. Whoops. Let's play. When you okay. Paroled out. Where did where did you set up uh, establish uh, your residency? I was I was under the interstate compact. I was paroled back to Illinois. Mm -hmm. And you went to Springfield first, did you not? No, no. Directly to Chicago directly because to Chicago. I had a job working at Bruno's restaurant. That was the requirement of a, of a interstate compact transfer. You had to have a job and a place to stay. I moved in with my mother in the condominium. My head, my dad had just passed away. And as you guys know from earlier, he's very close with his mother. So, um, and his relationship with his mother is going to springboard him into a business endeavor, which is going to springboard him into the criminal activity that you guys are about to uh, hear about later. So yeah. I, I, I live with my mother okay. and worked at Bruno's as a chef. Bruno's was a pizza place, but also an Italian restaurant. And John did like his job. I think that he liked the hobnob of being with other people. I mean, he had a whole new life of meeting people that probably would have never been in his life had he not been working at the restaurant. When I first got out on parole for the next two years, I stayed with Bruno's restaurant. Mm -hmm. And as you guys know, he was a chef while he was in prison. So obviously this is a perfect segue career for him to be able to make some money on his way out on parole, which no one in Illinois at this point knew that he had been in prison uh, for almost two years, guys. Remember, this is the 1960s, right? So no one uh, like guys police records weren't as streamlined as they are now where you can you know just punch someone's name in and get a, a hit you know computers weren't a thing uh, you know internet uh, national databases were just starting to be conceived at this point so you can effectively go to another state back then and become a whole new individual and people wouldn't necessarily be able to pull your criminal record unless they really went looking for it which you guys are going to see here in a sec and i worked for them but on the, on the side, I used to work from, I used to go in at four in the morning and get off at two o'clock in the afternoon. And to me, that was too short of a day, mm -hmm. not enough work. So I started doing odd jobs painting. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found that on the weekends, the afternoons and the, and the weekends, I was making more, more money. Oh, my bad, guys. Sorry. Than I was as a chef, mm -hmm. even though I was getting uh, 12 something an hour. Mm -hmm. I borrowed six hundred dollars from my. What's twelve dollars an hour back then was quite a bit, actually. Um, this is the early seventies. I'll look it up, guys, and give you guys a, a cost here in a sec. Mother and through odd jobs, I left the uh, chef business. That was about twelve dollars back then, guys. Was worth, it was about ninety-seven dollars today. So that's cool. He was making almost a hundred dollars an hour as a goddamn chef. Holy shit! In today's day and age, with our dollars. Um, so you guys can see here, he starts his business. So he gets a little, you know, loan from his mom and he uses this to springboard his, his business, entrepreneurship. 
He started kicking out this little remodeling type business. He went to construction and repairs and rebuilding and remodeling. He just wanted to be successful. He wanted to be known for something. And as you guys can see here, he gets into a manual labor. What his father was involved in and what he was not involved in when his father was alive. So you guys can see he finally takes the initiative after getting out of prison, getting a little advance from his mom. Hey, I'm going to become a fucking somebody. And I think a part of him, right, again, this is my uh, this is my interpretation from this, my personal interpretation from watching his interviews and everything else. Um, he wanted to do this to kind of appease his father, you know, even though because he felt responsible for his father's death while he was in prison for such a terrible crime like sodomy of a child. Right. So this was his way of saying, you know what, I'm going to make amends for being a loser all my life and never having my father see me succeed. Because remember, at this point, his father had only been really happy with him once he had a son. After that, he's continued to disappoint his father time and time and time again. So he gets into construction. I, uh, I own PDM contractors. PDM was able to work 52 weeks out of the year while most construction companies set, shut down for the winter. I never had time to shut down because I had them on a waiting list. Our business was growing at that rapid rate. And also, just want to make this very clear to some of you guys, because some of you guys uh, might not be uh, from the United States, or you, some of you guys have never been to the Midwest before. It is brutally cold in the Midwest, like bad. Some of the coldest places in the United States. Chicago in the winter is goddamn fucking miserable. They call it the Windy City for a reason. And the reason why, guys, is that it is unbearable during the wintertime, which is why he had a competitive edge, because him working 52 weeks of the year, not taking time off, is a huge advantage compared to other contractors that didn't want to work, work in the cold. So that gives him a huge leg up on all his competition, which allows him to scale his business up. And he started making quite a bit of money, and he's able to start to do what, guys? Procure young employees, which is going to be a key to the success of his crimes later on. Uh, we can hit some of these chats real quick. Homie lied about the $12 an hour in the 70s. Hell no. Nah. That's what he's saying he made uh, as a cook. All right, let's get back to the documentary. Oh, Isaiah James goes, what you doing if a guy like Gacy tried to be friends? Uh, I'm not being friends with him. <laughs> that's, a, that's a hell to the no, no, no. Uh, anything else? That's it. After prison, mom and John got along at first. His wife went on. Are you, have you seen the Ann Hetch ambulance clip? I'm not into conspiracy theories, but that story and clip looks crazy. I've never heard of it. On her way with the kids. He never tried to contact her or anything. And then uh, John started talking to mom about getting a bigger place because he needed to have a garage. He needed more space to uh, run a business. He couldn't do it from a condo. Well, lo and behold, mom went ahead without us and sold it, bought a house that he picked out on Somerdale. 8213 Somerdale Drive, which would end up becoming the gravesite for about 26 individuals, guys. All right. Um, and what I'll show you guys real fast is this home. This is what it looks like today. Okay. They ended up knocking the house down after um, the police found what they found there, all the bodies. But this is the home now. Okay. But this is the notorious Somerdale Drive in the Norwood Park uh, section of Chicago. But let's get back to the video. 
Norwood Park is where they moved to. Norwood Park Township was bungalows of people, small, single-family houses, the good working-class people of Chicago. This is where they live. That's what Norwood Park Township. Yeah, guys, I know his body count was 33, but they found about 26 in the house. Remember, he dumped a bunch of them on the river. So, uh, yes. Are you guys saying there's no audio? Someone said that there's there's no audio. Give me a... Test, 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 one, two, one three. I can hear that. that. I think only one person saying that. It was like that Somerdale house was rented. No, nah, there's audio. So, yeah, bro, just fix your mic, man. Audio is fine. Okay, someone trolling. BM contractors. Uh -huh. And like the living room was the front office. Uh -huh. The dining room of that house was like a boardroom because it was a, a an eight by uh, 10 foot table. Guys, if you put, you know, audio is bad or something like that, and you, you're trolling, bro, that, you fuck it up for everybody else. So please don't do that, guys. Unless the audio actually is bad, like, make sure you tell, make sure you keep it real. Because when you troll, you fuck it up for everybody else. With big caption shares, because we use it as a boardroom for meetings. John was happy because it was going to be where he could start a business. And mom was happy. I think she was happy to be back in the house again. But... Uh, all of it seemed kind of short-lived. Yep, and this is where start shit starts to get kind of crazy, guys. So he moves into the house, right? I'm going through my notes here real fast. Can we pull out some of these chats, by the way, real quick, Mia? Uh, there's no other new ones. No new ones? Okay, no. cool. So we're going to go ahead, guys, and fast forward to... Um, uh, hold on. I took a bunch of notes here, guys. Sorry. We're going to fast forward here to what actually kicks off the investigation, okay? Because the thing is, is that he starts his business, right? He starts making money. Now, with this business, guys, obviously he needs people to work for him, right? He needs uh, people to help him with all the types of construction and you know remodeling uh, business uh, things that he needs done. So he needs cheap labor. Who are you going to hire when you need cheap labor? You're going to hire young, capable men, right? Or teenagers, right? So there, what he does is, the sexual deviant that he is, he goes ahead and puts himself in a position of authority over these individuals, and he's able to use his business as a guise to lure, seduce, and then kill dozens of young men. Okay, guys? So what triggers the investigation is a boy goes missing, okay? Uh, a kid that, you know, comes from a good family, isn't a runaway, isn't a fuck-up, etc. His parents... Uh, turned every stone to find him, and this is what ends up triggering an investigation. We're going to fast forward to that part here, because between 1972 to 1978, he commits a whole bunch of murders, and it's not until he he um one, his last victim goes missing that the police finally start to investigate what the hell is going on. Uh, Frankie Baltimore Five Bucks goes, uh, such a uh, start face, you would straight. think, yeah, straight face, okay, you would think he was the narrator of someone else's doc. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you, he sounds very, the way he talks about everything that's happening, like it's it's hard to imagine that he has any sort of regret or remorse, which yeah. is why I was asking if you think he genuinely had regret or knew that what he was doing was wrong. Because mm -hmm. he just doesn't, I don't know, he just, it's like he's storytelling. <laughs> I think he knew kind of what was wrong because he like, he went ahead and like took like over steps to like conceal it. But definitely, um, you know, there's... He, he mitigates the, his, like, responsibility yeah. is what it is. He doesn't want to take accountability for it. 
Uh, temporary W's for Gacy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he ends up like, you know, he he tries to kind of shoot straight, but you guys are going to see um, opportunity presented itself and he couldn't help himself. So uh, let's get back into the into the um, into the pod. Uh, what's your favorite case you haven't covered yet? Uh, Sponge, uh, uh, SpongeBob. I'm going to be covering uh, <laughs> Bin Laden here probably tonight, uh, guys, uh, how the CIA found him, et cetera, for the documentary series. Uh, but let's keep going here. Only reporter there, but as the night wore on, words started to get out and others arrived. All right, so this is how the investigation initiates, guys, okay? December 11th, 1978. By morning, the story had started to come out. The first name to surface was Rob Peast. Okay, guys, Rob Peast, burn that name into your brains, okay? That, this missing individual is what sparks this entire investigation. This is a turning point, my friends. He was the trigger to the whole investigation. Rob Peast was working at a pharmacy in Des Plaines when all of a sudden he disappeared. Joe Kozenzak and his fellow detectives on the Des Plaines Police Force weren't out to make history or write the book on serial killers on December 12th, 1978. They were just looking for a missing boy. As I was looking through the police reports on December 12th, I noticed the missing person's case report of a young boy. People say policemen have a gut instinct in this case. That's how I'd have to describe it. I just felt there was something in this case that we should look at closer. I was with the Des Plaines, Illinois Police Department. One thing I like about this documentary, by the way, is they actually went ahead and got all the police officers that were, you know, intimately involved in this investigation. So you guys can get first uh, for, uh, you know, a close perspective on to what the hell was happening. First hand perspective, a first hand perspective on the actual investigation with the detectives that were involved in this case. OK, and this is a small police department, guys. So this is some shit right here that they're probably never going to forget. And you can tell from the way that they recall the events that it's still burned in their memories. Stuff like this, you never forget. Uh, I started there in 1972. I got a call from Captain Kozenzak on the uh, 13th of December. Rob Peace, 15-year-old boy from Des Plaines, had gone missing under unusual circumstances. Late in the day on the 11th of uh, December, his mother had come to his place of employment, which was a pharmacy in Des Plaines, uh, picking him up uh, at the end of his workday. Rob Peace had come out and spoke with his mom and said, hey, listen, I'll be done in a few minutes. Uh, I've got this contractor that I want to talk to. Uh, So contractor wants to talk to him. And you guys are going to see here a crazy link in a second. I understand he's hiring and uh, I could probably make substantially more than I'm making here. So if you don't mind, I'll just be a few minutes. I'm going to go talk to this guy and I'll be right back. He was pretty excited about it. And, um, I told him there'd be no problem that I'd wait. So you guys can see here, the parents actually went on television to talk about their missing son. So they, they didn't, um, you know, they didn't sleep. And the thing also that made this crazy was that he went missing on his mom's birthday, guys. Uh, They had planned for him to help her with setting up the party and everything else like that. So he came from a good home. His parents cared, cared for about him. The police had known him. He was involved in the community. So, you know, this obviously put, you know, a fire under the police officer's asses to go ahead and look for this guy. Unlike a lot of the other individuals that went missing prior to, um, to peace getting, uh, getting, uh, getting kidnapped. Okay. Um, so this is, uh, this is very important 
as to what led the police to start this investigation and take things a little bit more serious. And this trail of $2, bro, I sell cars in this Maine's Illinois, Plains, Illinois. Okay, shout out to you, my friend. Um, you live in a historic area. Roy Lopez goes doing great work, brother. Grind never stops. Thanks for the great content. Absolutely, man. I got y'all, man. Uh, former coworker of mine ran out of Gacy's house and took off on his bike when Gacy came out of a room dressed as Pogo the Clown survived him somehow. No way, bro. No fucking way. Uh, El SpongeBob, what's your favorite? Oh, oh we, it, that one. we read that one before. That's it. And guys, do me a quick favor, yo. There's 2,600 of you guys watching, almost 3,000 altogether between Twitch and YouTube. Like the goddamn video. I'm looking right now. I only got 1.2K likes, man. Get the engagement to at least 100%. We should be like 90 to 100% easy, guys. This stuff took me a long time to research. As you guys can see, I spent hours, you know, uh, taking notes for you guys so that I would be educated on this case. So uh, do me a favor and like the video and subscribe to the channel. Get me to 2K likes at least, man. I'd really appreciate it. Let's keep going here. Forum. And that was the last I saw of him. A little after 9 o'clock, Mom was waiting for him to return. He didn't return after Rob didn't show up. Mr. and Mrs. Peace searched all around Des Plaines, uh, frantically looking for him. Rob Peace was very, very close to his family. They were going to celebrate the mother's birthday that night. And at that point, the Peace family launched a full court press into the disappearance of a, of a, of a child who to them was inconceivable to have disappeared. W parents in the chat. W parents, man. W parents. We knew something was wrong. So from there, we went to the, the police and uh, filed a missing persons report. Missing persons back in, in, in that era and even now were uh, pretty much a dime a dozen. We'll get a call of a missing person and they most likely have run away previously or had problems in school or with a family or something like that. It was totally different with Rob Peace. I mean, and this is where John Gacy fucked up because prior guys, a lot of his victims were, you know, kids that came from fucked up homes, male prostitutes, runaways, etc. So he was able to kind of prey on them and victimize them and no one would really care. However, uh, this guy had a family and his parents gave a shit which is why they were able to put an enormous amount of pressure on the police. And the police actually knew him as well. So they took this investigation much more seriously, which would lead them to finding out the crazy shit they're about to find out. He was like a really good kid. Uh, he enjoyed school. Uh, he enjoyed his family. So it was really unusual for him to go missing. When the police report was being taken, the desk officer overheard the mother make a statement to the father saying, I wonder who the contractor guy was. So they took the police, they took the report on the 13th. So he goes up missing the 11th guy. So about two days later, they go ahead and take the report. That to me, and he just jumped out like, who is this? And they did a little background work on this. Find out that the contractor that was there was a gentleman by the name of John Gacy. And his- Oh shit. And what's his expertise guys? His expertise is he remodels pharmacies. Oh shit. oh, shit. Oh, shit. There's the connection, my friends. He remodels pharmacies. So where does he pick up peace? He picks him up while he's working at a pharmacy telling him, hey, I got a job for you. Now, give me kind of just an overview of the business that you eventually established, the, the construction work. Is this self-taught then, the, the construction <clears throat> and yeah. maintenance work? I started doing painting, and then I started doing wallpapering and decorating. And inside of three years... Uh, PDM, which is painting, decorating, and maintenance, was doing a million dollars a year. And that was... So he was doing a million dollars a year, guys. So this guy had money. He was involved in the community. He was involved 
doing charity. He was, he was, you know, dressing up as a clown and playing with kids in the hospitals that were sick. Um, he was doing all, he was involved in politics. I know he had uh, helped out with the democratic party. He had met the first lady, which I'll pull up a picture of that for you guys here in a second. So clearly, you know, he had some status and power and he went after people that quite frankly, no one cared about. Right. But is there any proof that he was making that much money? Cause he could, he could have just been saying that to stroke his own ego. I believe it though. Like a construction company like that, like a million a year. I, but this I, was I in the at this point this was like the 70s yeah this is right? like 1978 so i think that's if i'm not mistaken that's about one 3.5 million today uh let me see here 1 million uh usd 1978 to today that is approximately oh shit 1 million dollars in 1978 is equivalent to purchasing power of about four million five hundred fifty two thousand two hundred sixty nine dollars and 94 cents so um yeah i don't know he doesn't look that rich yeah but uh, well i mean that's he's in a prison outfit and he's sitting being but, interviewed right but he didn't have like the top-notch lawyers and you know oh, or did he like, well he has some good lawyers you're gonna see here in a second how they okay, got him okay uh but yeah like yeah he was making a million dollars a year which i believe uh as a construction company remember that's that's gross that's not necessarily that's um true. like yeah. you know what Take he's pocketing you're right. but he was grossing a million dollars a year which i believe in the 70s um, which is the equivalent to about four point five million dollars today. So this guy was was very wealthy. He had some money, very successful. And I only had four employees. And that was the, the business you were in at the time of the arrests. That's correct. PDM in nineteen seventy four became a corporation, and then I owned PDM Contractors Corporation. I owned PDM Plumbing, PDM Concrete, and PDM Decorating. Mm-hmm. And then I branched off with another partner into Rafco Construction. Mm-hmm. All right, so he's saying 1974. I'm doing it again for 1974. That's about six million dollars today. One million back in '74 was about six million dollars purchasing power today. And from there, uh, we were doing strictly drugstores. Mm-hmm. John was successful in his, you know, remodeling business of drugstores. He was very good at chatting up the proprietor of suggest. Also, I believe that he may was making that money because when you're remodeling and doing commercial, you can charge a lot more mm-hmm. because these drugstores, like you know, typically they're they're owned by big companies that have the money to go ahead and like pay for that type of remodeling. So when you're charging people in the commercial world, you can charge a lot more. So I, I believe it that he made uh, a million bucks a year in, in seventy in the seventies. Yeah, testing how to lay you know lay out the store so that people would see more products and buy something, and you know he hired teenagers to do the work. Kind of costs. Not only that, he was using it for his own sexual deviant purposes. I work for John's business, PDM Contractors. In all right, so we're gonna fast forward. And you guys are gonna we're gonna revisit this individual that's about to speak right now as well. So we're gonna fast forward this to um, when the police start putting pressure on him, which is and he gave his name as John Wayne Gacy. So they bring him in and they start this. So they identify John Wayne Gacy as the person that Peace probably talked to last. And this is when the police start to amp it up. And stated that he didn't know anything about any missing kids from the drugstore. He was a little um, defensive. And based on that, we wanted to pursue him a little further. We were trying to do some background record checks, but in 1978, 
it, you know, it's not like it is today. Instantaneously, you get a criminal history, you can find out everything you want. In 1978, the Chicago Police Department had a file called the Alpha file, and they would, based on what you told them, search these files by hand. Now, guys, this is not like today, okay? Back then, right? Like, I remember when I was an agent, like, I can go ahead and search, you know, records from any police department anywhere in the country. Hell, I was even, even able to pull up Canadian records if I wanted. But that was not what it's like, guys, back then in the 70s. You had to manually call people and get have, the, and then they would go look for the records by hand. And then that's assuming if they were able to even find it, then they will call you back like a day or two later and tell you, oh, yeah, we have a police record on this individual. This was before NCIC and let's. You know, all these interstate databases that track criminal activity or track criminal records, this was way before all that. So everything was done by phone, by typewriter, by fax. And obviously it would take days, if not weeks, for you to get a record back. For some of you guys, um, I did a, a podcast on the uh, shooting in the Miami case, right? So back in 1986, there was a shooting with the FBI and a bunch of uh, individuals. Now, mind you, the reason why they got into that shooting, guys, was because they had looked, they tried to get DMV records for one of the individuals. Had they gotten those DMV records in time, they would have identified the individuals and been able to do surveillance properly. But since they didn't have the DMV records and didn't necessarily know what the guys looked like, that ended up with them following them to try to identify them. And then they ended up getting in a shootout and dying. Okay. Those are the dire consequences of what it was like prior to automated computer systems that would allow you to get records instantaneously in the criminal justice system. So in the 70s, it was even less refined as the, in, than the 80s, guys. So I can only imagine how long it took these guys to get a records check back on Gacy, where they had to make phone calls, et cetera. And at this point, they got a missing individual. So they're probably telling them, hey, I need these records immediately. I need them now because we got a missing person in every single hour that passes by when you have a missing individual, the chances and likelihood of finding them alive diminish with it, guys, all right? So go ahead, like the video for the WW commentary, and uh, let's get back into it. We called Chicago Police Department and said, we're trying to find out more about this guy we're looking at. Can you help us? Do you have any criminal history on him on record? And this police officer said, the guy's on parole to Chicago from the state of Iowa. He served prison time. He was convicted of sodomy of a young boy. And the hair stood up on the back of our necks. Holy. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Now, so mind you guys, the police don't know. So now they got a missing kid, comes from a good family, works at a pharmacy, was meeting with a contractor to get a job, right? They find out the contractor was John Wayne Gacy. They find out that John Wayne Gacy specializes in doing pharmacy remodeling. And they know that he was the last individual that spoke with, with peace. And then on top of that, they do a criminal history check and find out, wait, this guy got a 10-year sentence for sodomy of a, young, of a young kid that was the same age as the individual we're looking for? Bro, at that point, they're like, we got to go balls to the fucking wall on this guy, all right? Uh, what do we got here? Oh, Trilla goes, my, fr uh, my friend's dad was approached by John Wayne and tried to offer him a contracting and construction job. And my friend's dad luckily ran away from him sensing the bad vibes. Crazy man. Also liked the video. Hey, man, crazy world we're in, my friends. Would you do the Kenneth Supreme breakdown? Yes, I'm already researching the Kenneth Supreme team case. Uh, uh, this is why you got to lift and know how to throw hands. Yes, you do. You definitely do, bro. 
in case a crazy clown comes up and tries to recruit you to <laughs> do remodeling. When they found that uh, he had been arrested in Iowa for uh, sexually molesting a young boy, that obviously threw some flags up. They put together a couple of detectives later that e evening and went looking for, for Gacy. And so obviously armed with this information, they're about to start doing a full court press. And you guys are going to see here in a second how the police did it. When they got to his, his home, he was getting ready to leave. Now, they did not search the house at that time or look through the house? No. According, according uh, afterwards, they're, they're claiming that they came to the front door of the house and knocked on the door and that I hid from them. Why, why didn't you let them in at that time when they were knocking at the front door? There was no way I could have heard them. I was, at, I was way in the back of the house, in the, in the rec room, on the telephone. When they walked, finally walked, walked around the side of the house, I could look out the picture window, see them there, because I was on the phone, and they could see me clearly, too, sitting on the couch on the telephone. Yeah, more cap from your boy. Stop the cap. More than likely, uh, Gacy, but, you know, it is what it is, like I said before. He's a very terrible liar. He says things to kind of mitigate uh, responsibility. He makes it, he tries to minimize things. Um, and you guys are going to see that this is a trend when they're talking to him uh, during his interview. Because I was talking to my sister in regards to a death in our family. So I, I told her that I would call her back, got up, went to the door, and, they, and he introduced himself as Cozen, Zach, and Pakel, and they wanted to come in and talk to me about... Uh, Robert Peast. And I had told him that I had not had any conversation with him, but I said, if you want to talk to me, then come back there. We just pushed him a little. We said, we and you guys are going to see that that was a big stop the cap when they search his house a little bit later. We need you to come into the police station, give us a witness statement about what you did see when you were at the drugstore. And he said, I don't I have time. I can't. I can't do that now. I'm... And they wanted me to come down to the police station. Okay. Well, I didn't have time because I was doing work for the county and, and stuff like that. As soon as we left Gacy's house, he attempted to flee from the area, running to his car and driving away at a high rate of speed. Oh. Now, who does that, right? I had decided based on Gacy's actions, trying to run from us and, and his attitude in the house, that I was going to try to get a search warrant. Now, what is a search warrant, guys? A search warrant is basically a document that you get signed by a judge, typically supported by an affidavit, right, of facts from an investigator uh, saying, hey, I need to search this premises because X, Y, Z, here's my probable cause, why I believe a crime has been committed, and I feel as though I am going to find evidence and or fruits of a crime from searching the premises. So they got a missing person, they got an evasive John Gacy, they have some interesting facts, which makes them believe that it was Gacy who was involved, indeed the person that was involved in this, person, this person's disappearance. So they're going to go ahead and start to try to gather evidence so that they can go ahead and do a search warrant. Okay. Uh, just want to shout out to you because of the platform. I'm working to elevate myself to the highest position that God has for me. May peace be upon you. Much love. Thank Aww. you so much, Joshua. I appreciate that. Um, Myron, you are always preaching about doing more difficult tasks. In that case, would you knowingly reproduce with a woman that was a serial killer or a serial killer's daughter? Uh, the answer to that, my friend, is nope. Uh, and then was Gacy the main reason behind the people's call rophobia? Make sure to like the video. I don't know what that means, but I'm sure Mia will go ahead and look it up for y'all. Yeah, I'll look it up. And then do me a quick favor, guys. We got 2,700 y'all watching right now on YouTube alone. 
over 3,000 altogether with Twitch involved. So, guys, do me a quick favor. Like the video. Get me to 2K likes, man, so I don't have to keep asking. Once I get to 100% engagement, pretty much, I, I don't care anymore. I'm just going to you know, keep cruising and not ask for any likes on the video. But we got to get the engagement up because I already know that this video is going to get suppressed in the algorithm based off of the sensitive nature of uh, the content, okay? So do cool. me a favor, like the video because I know it's going to get suppressed. Go ahead. Chlorophobia is just the fear of clowns. Oh, clown really? phobia. Yeah. Okay. All right. Fair enough. I, I think I got that because I'm terrified of clowns. I fucking really? hate clowns. Yeah, I hate clowns. Why? But I just never liked them. But I, I went just... to like a, a Barnum and Bailey uh, Ringley Brothers circus thing, I remember, as a kid, and I just never liked the clowns. Uh, <laughs> you know? Well, you like clowns? Well, it's just a person with makeup. What's so freaky about it? I don't know, man. I'm, they, they look evil to me, bro. I'm like, eh, what the hell? <laughs> But that's just oh me. Oh my god, that's hilarious. Yeah, I I definitely have that callrophobia. Yeah, I don't like clowns. Uh, fucking it. Are was, you afraid of heights? I'm scared of heights too. Oh my god. Yes. Yes, I'm scared of clowns and heights. <laughs> Went into the police station finally on the next day. After this was after cousins Zach and Pakel were at the house, they had asked me to come in and give me an account of my whereabouts. When Gacy came into the station, it was my job to entertain him for a couple hours. Because he was only there for to be interviewed. We couldn't detain him, but we didn't want him to leave until we got the search warrant. Okay, so this is an investigative technique here, guys, right? So when you're trying to get a search warrant, you don't want people to destroy the evidence. So the police are smart here. What they did was they're like, yo, let's bring him in, let's bring him in for questioning. Let's butter him up a little bit. Let's build some rapport. Let's get him to stay here as long as we possibly can while we go ahead and get our probable cause all together, draft up an affidavit, Write the aff you know, draft up the affidavit, give it to the prosecutor, prosecutor approves it, then we go ahead and get it signed by a judge. This all takes time, guys. Okay. It, you know, it's not easy to sit there and outline all your evidence, right? Make sure that it's accurate and correct, right? Because you can't lie under oath. Get it to a prosecutor. They gotta read it, then they gotta send it up to their management, then they approve it. Then you finally give it to the judge. The judge reads it, thinks it's good enough, then you get it signed. So this all takes hours. So what they're doing is they're biding their time, right? And keeping Gacy out of the house because they don't want him to destroy evidence. Remember, guys, at this point. They've been interviewing him. They've been asking him questions. So they don't want him to get spooked and start like removing potential evidence that they can use to pin charges on him later for the disappearance of peace. Because remember, at this point, they don't know that he's a serial killer. They don't know that he's a mass murderer. They just know that they got a missing boy in their hands and they're trying to find him alive. Okay. And when they had the finding is way worse than that. So uh, let's get back into it. So uh, for two hours, I sat there with him and I quickly analyze him and figure out this guy was a blowhard and had a big ego so i just started feeding it he'd tell me about how successful a business he was and how he took care of the neighborhood he was the go-to guy in this neighborhood see so he's using that to his advantage so what does the detective do oh okay i see that you got an ego gotcha bitch and he plays into that which was smart on this investigator's perspective and i would ask him you know about people he knew and he started telling me that he knew this guy he knew that guy uh, politician, so I would just act like I was really impressed. And he was just going nuts telling me all about this. So there was no problem keeping him there. The thing of it is, is that uh, uh, on that same day... And just so you guys know, this is what he brags about right here. This is John Gacy right here with the first lady, okay? With uh, Rosalind Carter, who uh, was the wife of Jimmy Carter back then, who probably arguably is one of the worst presidents of U.S. history. But, you know, this goes to show... Right. You can see right here that he has this little badge right here. And this means that he got approved by the Secret Service guys to go ahead and be able to meet the first lady. Now, again, this goes back to show you guys the, the archaic technology of the 1970s. 
they weren't even able to pull up the fact that he was a sex offender. They didn't even know because if they had known that he was a sex offender, they would have never approved them to meet the first lady. However, here he is being able to meet her, shake hands and take a photograph because back then, you know, they just did not have the technology and or the means to get a criminal history check on someone right there and then. So uh, L Secret Service right there, my friends. Um, let's keep rolling the clip. They held me there at, for nine hours. And while holding me there for nine hours, they executed a search warrant. The first search warrant was executed on December 13th. That is the search warrant where they claimed they went through the house looking for Robert Peace. It was written up to be looking for Robert Peace, and Robert Peace wasn't there. Well, yeah, duh, he wasn't there because uh, you killed him, my friend. And here, guys, is the search warrant that they actually um, – here's the text from the actual search warrant. I'm going to go ahead and read it to y'all real fast. Um, and like I said before, guys, the search warrant – is um, what you write in order to be able to search a home to get fruits of a crime and or evidence, right? So I, Joseph Kozinczak, uh, Detective Lieutenant with the Des Plaines Police Department, received information on December 11, 1978 concerning the missing persons case report on Robert J. Peast, uh, white, male, white, uh, born on March 15, uh, 1963, uh, 5 foot 140 pounds, brown hair, and a slim build. During the course of my police investigation, the following information was revealed that Peast was last seen at 1920 to Ave in this plains in Nissan Drugs, where he works by Kim Byers, a fellow employee. Byers stated that Peace approached her and said, come watch the register. That contractor guy wants to talk to me. I'll be right back. Now, guys, just so y'all know, this is the, um, this is the, where the pharmacy used to be, okay? It's now a, uh, it's a private school slash preschool. Actually, you know what? Hold on. This is what it looks like today, actually. It's a daycare and preschool. Uh, Mile Millie's house, it looks like. That's what it is today. But back then, it was a pharmacy, okay? Uh, so he goes, at which time Peace went outside the store to meet with John W. Gacy. Miss Leather's Peace, the missing boy's mother, was also in the store at this time and was waiting to pick her son uh, up from work. Prior to leaving the store, her son requested that she wait a few minutes while she spoke while he spoke to a subject about a summer construction job. Miss Peace waited over 20 minutes in the store and then began looking for her son. Robert Peace left the store at approximately 2100 hours, so that's 9 p.m., and has not been seen or heard from since. On the date in question, John Gacy was observed in the store at 1922 Yab on two different occasions, once at 6 p.m. and a second time at 8 p.m., at which time he stayed in the store until 8.50 p.m., which was the approximate time that the missing person, Robert J. Peace, disappeared from the store location. During the course of my investigation, it was found that John W. Gacy is, in fact, a contractor and owner of same which is under the name of PDM Construction Company, located at 8213 West Summerdale Ave. And that's right here, guys. Okay? This this home now, right? What it looks like today. Because he ran his business out of his home, as you guys know from before, after getting that advance from his mom. Uh, uh, Northridge, Illinois, which is his residence. A one-story ranch-type house, brick structure with semi-circles uh, drive-in center, uh, sorry, drive in front and driveway on the east side of the building. And remember, guys, uh, the reason why he's putting this there is because when you um, are doing a search warrant, you have to be able to describe the structure that is going to be searched. OK, uh, the property also contains an oversized brick garage in the rear of the property. Also included is a black van truck with PDM painted on it, along with a black pickup truck with PDM on its side. Also a black 1979 Oldsmobile in Illinois license plate PDM 42 VIN 
and then I put the number there. During the course of my investigation, I learned that John W. Gacy was arrested and convicted in Waterloo, Iowa in 1968 for sodomy and sentenced to 10 years in prison. The sodomy arrest involved 15 and 16 year old youths. In 1968, John W. Gacy was arrested for conspiracy assault with attempt to commit felony on 15, 16 year old youths. And this is the case number here. Subject was also arrested on June 22nd, 1972 by the Northbrook, Illinois Police Department case number, aggravated bar battery and reckless conduct, which was a sex related offense. And I think in this case, guys, he tried to pick up someone from a Greyhound bus station. Okay. Have, um, you, have you defined sodomy for the oh, viewers? Yeah, I think they know what that okay. means. But basically, guys, <laughs> putting uh, injecting someone in someone's rectum, something in someone's rectum, whether a foreign object or a sex organ. All right. Um, uh, so, the, so basically, this is them describing the vehicle, etc. Some more. So that is the search warrant, guys, that they used to search the home on December thirteenth, nineteen seventy-eight. Two days after uh, Peace went missing. Guys, like the goddamn video. Who else is going to be pulling up search warrants, reading it for y'all, giving y'all the, you know, explaining what things are, etc. What are we at here? I, we got one point eight k likes, guys. I need you guys to get me to two thousand, at least. Like, come on, I'm giving y'all a lot of sauce right now. Easy Bands goes, great content, fam. History is written by winners. Keep making it. Salute and like the video for the Algo family. Yes, guys, please like the video. I don't ask for much. You don't have to donate a dollar to the show. Just like the goddamn video. All right. Uh, Edgar24, $5. Mario, stop the cap. You'll be dealing with a bunch of clowns on the after hour show on the daily. Much love. <laughs> can I get a Don DeMarco? Yes, you can, my friend. Don DeMarco. So uh, now we're going to go ahead and get into Lawrence Finder, the prosecutor for Cook County, who prosecuted this case. There's one more. Oh, uh, Myron, a girl threw in my life after I told her to leave my apartment for being disrespectful. Should I report her to the authorities or ignore her? Police probably ain't going to do nothing, bro, if she didn't hit you, to be honest with you. But you could go. I would go ahead and go ahead and file a police report so it's documented. So if something does happen, you know what I mean? It's there. Gacy lived in an unincorporated area of Cook County called Norwood Park. The location of his residence was significant because he lived a stone's throw away from the Nissan pharmacy in Des Plaines. And just so you guys know, I want to show you guys how close this pharmacy actually was to um to his house you guys can see seven minutes 4.3 miles so here is where the pharmacy was located okay guys and this is where he lived so you know they had quite a bit of probable cause here to display that a not only did was gacy close to the area and he knew the area but he also worked on pharmacies and was a renovator for the for those types of businesses so you guys can see exactly um how close gacy was uh to you know getting peace at his place of work where Rob Peace was working. Like the goddamn video, I'm over here pulling up maps and all this other stuff, man. Ain't nobody else giving you all this kind of sauce anywhere else on the YouTubes, okay? There's no other former federal agents on YouTube giving you guys this kind of sauce and giving you guys this kind of insight as to criminal activity from prolific cases, smaller cases, famous cases, whatever you guys want to call it. Like the goddamn video. Myron, did you hear about Ethan getting banned? Uh, I did hear about it, and honestly, even though I don't like Ethan Klein, I don't think anyone should be getting banned, even people that are shitty podcasters. The first search warrant was an attempt to find Rob Peace alive. And we didn't find that. The first search did not give us any direct information in relation to where Rob Peace was. But they found a bunch of crazy shit in his house that's going to open Pandora's box as to what your boy John Wayne Gacy was doing in his free time, all right? Pay attention, guys. They didn't find any bodies in the Gacy house, but they did find uh, things that really didn't belong there, such as a class ring uh, with the initials of somebody that was not John Wayne Gacy. 
So they found a, a high school class ring with foreign initials. That's one thing. And they found a variety of pornography. Uh, they found up in the attic uh, some shackles and uh, they also found up in the attic under some insulation two books, one of which was entitled The Gay Love Letters and the other book was Pretty Boys Must Die. You know, these are very Okay, so they found a class ring, pornography, shackles, two books, one called The Gay Lovers, all right? And then the other one is Pretty Boys Must Die. If that doesn't raise red flags, I don't know what does. Okay, guys, like that is some wild shit for them to find at his house, okay? And this is supposed to be a contractor who's involved in politics, a good individual, you know, dresses up as a clown for, you know, sick children at the hospital, uh, you know, donates, all this other stuff. He's supposed to be a community leader, all this stuff. And look at the stuff that they find at his house. Very, very odd things to have in the trash can. And this is important, guys. Pay attention to what, the, what they find in the trash can. Also, I don't know why they didn't put this in his documentary. They also found um, underwear that did not belong to him. That was uh, men's underwear or young I, men's underwear that did not belong to him. I don't know why they didn't mention that in the documentary. But look at what they find in the trash. In the kitchen, they found a film receipt that originated from Nissan Pharmacy where Rob Peace had worked. It had no one's name on it. All it had was a number on it. So we, we really had no idea what the film was about or who it belonged to. We assumed it probably belonged to Gacy, but uh, they recovered that just in case. Those are the shackles. And they found a receipt from the pharmacy guys that belonged to Peace. So that right there in itself, guys, all these different things. That's the class ring, more of the shackles. We found driver's license from two other individuals. So that was... And they found driver's licenses of two people, and these people end up missing later on, guys. What we found, but nothing to lead us to Robert Peace. So we had to leave the house and let Casey back in. And that right there, guys, is definitely a... Imagine you got a missing per child, right? You're all excited. Yeah, we're going to find him. We're going to find him. You go to the fucking house. You find a class high school ring that doesn't belong to Gacy. Men's underwear that doesn't belong to him and or would not fit him because he was obviously five foot eight, 200 plus pounds. Okay. Two books, Pretty Boys Must Die and The Gay Lovers. You find um, shackles, restraining equipment, two driver's licenses of people that don't belong to him. And on top of that, you find a receipt in the trash from the pharmacy that belongs to Peace. So obviously, this builds. Uh, a significant amount of evidence that, okay, peace isn't here. We got this search warrant to look for peace, and we didn't find him. But what the hell is all this other shit? Let's continue on. My job at the time was to start digging in, into his past and in his company's past. Casey had been married in Iowa. He had. So obviously this raises the police suspicions. <laughs> So they go ahead and they start digging into him. Remember, guys, they don't know all the information that I'm telling you guys right now. All they know is that this guy's a contractor. He's a little weird. What the hell's going on? Let's look into his business. Look, Let's look into him. Why the hell do we find this weird stuff at his house? Two children out there at the time that he went to prison. And as soon as he was paroled, he headed back to Chicago. By checking missing person reports from the area, in a specific age, we we started seeing that several other people that had worked for him were missing. Oh, shit. A bunch of people that worked for Gacy now all of a sudden are nowhere to be found. Okay? 
So the police are slowly starting to piece it together. It started with one missing person that didn't show up, you know, that worked at a pharmacy, and now they're starting to find something much more sinister. These individuals were young men that were being reported missing and have not been seen for several months. We find out that the driver's licenses that were found in his house seemingly were related to missing persons. After the first search warrant, when the police officers brought back the class ring, which had initials inside of it, JS, we were able to find out this ring belonged to a fellow by the name of John Zick. And in then checking with his family, finding out that in fact, Zick is missing. Holy! Oh shit! Oh shit! So now they find a class ring of an individual that's been missing for a while at his house. L. Gacy in the chat. We would sit there in the displays police department and just say, what in God's name are we sitting on top of? They're sitting on one of the most prolific serial killers in U.S. history. But wait, there's more. Give me one in the chat if you guys want me to go ahead and recap what the hell's been going on so far. If you guys don't want me to, I'll go ahead and continue on. If you guys want to recap, give me a one. If you guys want to keep just going, just give me a two. Let's see what the chat says. Because we're pretty much about halfway done here. I know some of y'all just joined the, the stream. Uh, let's see here. Mia, what are you saying? Mostly twos. It Mostly twos? Like... They want me to recap real fast? No, the I thought one was recap. One is recap, two is keep going. I'm one saying... is recap, two is keep going. It's mostly twos? Yeah, it looks like it. Okay, they want to keep going. It's kind of a All mix, right. but All right. I think mostly twos. Cool, no worries. And don't worry, guys. I'll make sure that I put timestamps in this bad boy as well. Um, so I got y'all. Um, let's see here. So where are we at here? Uh, okay, let's keep going. We saw that Gacy had a long record. There were red flags all along the way that for some reason, nobody paid attention to. You know, they say where there's smoke, there was fire. In this case, there was a blaze out of control. Don't worry, guys. I'll, I'll recap again uh, probably after this first portion here. I'll recap. It was in so many different districts, and some were more diligent than others in pursuing it. I think they did look the other way many times, but the fact that he got away with it for so long, is he entirely to blame? Or is there something faulty with... Now, this guy, Craig Boley, just so y'all know, he basically went and visited John Gacy for many years while he was in prison and had many conversations with him. And he was one of the few people that John Gacy was friends with while he was in prison. So Friends? Yeah, he was actually friends Wait, with him. So he just so wrote him randomly. Him? What was that? They were just pen pals? Yeah, pretty much. They oh. became, they were pen pals at first, and then he ended up visiting him in prison, and they just started talking. Oh, Strange, yeah. But, yeah, there's weirdos like that that write yeah. serial killers all the time. Like, Jeffrey Dahmer made, like, 10000 bucks while he was in prison. But that's he had like fans. fangirls though, yeah. and everything. Like, yeah, this guy was a fan too. Wow. So yeah, when you're a serial killer, people Crazy. just write you. The system 
Our primary focus, our only focus was watching Gacy. And you're hoping you're going to find this kid alive someplace, you know. So now the police step it up and they start 24-7 surveillance. Whatever it may be that, you know, return him home. But it was quite apparent, you know, just days into it, that Rob Peace might have been the victim of a homicide. We felt it very urgent that we keep an eye on Gacy. (laughs) No matter what, let's not lose him. From the very... What happened? The subtitle said gay C. (laughs) (laughs) You're so immature. (laughs) It's hard not to notice it. Sorry, keep going. We had a team of uh, undercover police officers, four of them, uh, working 12-hour shifts that were supposed to be tailing him. Now, real quick, I want to let you guys know that 24-hour surveillance is not easy to, you know, do. It's extremely difficult. You need quite a bit of manpower. And the fact that they were running 24-7 surveillance while only four detectives is wild to me. Remember, guys, this is a smaller, limited police department. But clearly, they're very serious about trying to find this guy alive. And they're not sure if he's alive at this point. And they found a bunch of uh, evidence in his house that made them say, what the fuck is going on? We got to watch this guy. So, so So now... They start with only four guys doing 24-7 surveillance. I'll tell you all this myself from my professional experience. When I've done 24-7 surveillance, you need at least, you know, six to ten guys to be able to rotate shifts and be able to do it effectively. The fact that they were doing, you know, 12-hour shifts with only four guys is wild. But, hey, man, that shows the resolve of the police department, even with limited resources and personnel, that they wanted to make it happen. I start the surveillance shortly after the first search warrant. Right away, we're thinking, hey, you know, if, if he's not being held against his will, Rob Peace, you know, the worst case scenario is that he's been killed and there's a possibility that there's more than one victim. So I'm thinking to myself, now, what am I doing out here by myself? And I went back that day. I said, listen, it's probably a good idea if we grab one more guy for the night shift to be my partner. And that's how my partner, Mike uh, Albrecht, became involved. We weren't necessarily given any instructions. We're just told, watch Casey. And this guy was uh, Gacy's favorite person, by the way. He confessed a lot of his crimes to him. He had a suspect in a could be a homicide case, so you got to watch. The police had uh, uh, focused on you as being the suspect and the missing boy, and eventually... uh, Well, they were following me around. Following you. Yeah, constantly. And on December 13th, I had made a statement to the police department. And from that date forward, Mm -hmm. uh, they had me under surveillance. The only trouble is, is that the, the Mickey Mouse way they were doing it, they had two cars following me day and night mm-hmm. and they had trouble keeping up with me. So I used to go out to the car in the morning and tell them where I was going. So I... <laughs> guys, that tells you his fucking cockiness right there. You know, yo, you guys are going to follow me, etc. And I also love the fact that he refuses to acknowledge. He says, oh, it was my statement, which is why they're following me. No, my friend. <laughs> The reason why they're following you is because they found a bunch of dudes underwear in your place, a class ring that doesn't belong to you, a receipt from the pharmacy from someone that went missing. And on top of that, they got handcuffs, books on um, uh, handcuffs and shackles, uh, strange books on homosexuality uh, to kill a pretty boy or pretty boys must die, etc. Of course, they're going to follow you like what the hell is going on here. Okay, but he, of course minimizes his involvement in his potential criminal activities and makes it sound like, oh, I just gave a statement and now they're following me, harassing me. So you know what? I'm going to go ahead and tell them where I'm going because they're Mickey Mouse police. So you guys see what he's trying to do here? 
which is hilarious because the person that's interviewing him, guys, by the way, is an FBI agent. He's an FBI profiler that um, where Gacy was actually one of the first case studies on serial killers. Uh, Isaiah James Tubos goes, is safety ever compromised during surveillance ops? A lot of the times it is, guys. Um, and the fact that the police were so overt with this is um, good and bad. And you guys are going to see it here in a second. Herbert, Herbert the pervert before he entered retirement, RIP Chris Griffin. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's get back into it, guys. Here's a case that got lost. Because at the time, I was doing five construction jobs in five parts of the city. So in an essence, I was all over the place. But this was like Keystone Cops trying to follow me around. Keystone Cops, okay. Hey, guys, do me a quick favor. We got 2,900 plus y'all in, in here watching us on YouTube alone, and then we got another two or 300 watching us on Twitch. So go ahead and like the video, man. Let's get it up to 2,500 likes. Let's get the engagement up to 100%, man, because this video took a lot of preparation, a lot of homework. So I uh, hope you guys are enjoying the commentary and the documentary. Casey did know he was being surveilled right from the get-go on the very first day of my surveillance. Um, when I was just being relieved, Casey came up to us and asked if we were the police. And we responded, well, we're with the Plains, you know, and uh, we've been told to uh, keep an eye on you, and that's what we're doing. <laughs> what? That's just not giving a fuck. Yeah, what yeah, we fuck? got you under surveillance, bro. We're just here. It is what it is. So one of us would be parked on, in the front of Gacy's house, and the other one right on the corner because if Gacy wanted to go out the back and be able to watch that. Uh, first night was kind of uneventful, and we spent most of the night at Casey's house. Jimmy Five Bucks goes, apply to five police departments today, to then get on YouTube to watch FNF and see my favorite YouTuber was a former cop. Love you even more now. Don DeMarco. Yes, shout out to, Don DeMarco. Shout out to all my brothers in blue out there that work uh, in law enforcement or used to work in law enforcement. You know, for some of you guys that are new viewers, I used to be a special agent of Homeland Security. Um, you know, it was a great job, a lot of fun. And, you know, I do the FEDA channel now to kind of relive that past. And, you know, I break down serial killer cases for you guys, federal cases, state cases, whatever it is. Um, so, yeah, let's continue on with the, with the documentary. Thank you for the support, my friend. But then, you know, he started going places at night. On the third day of the surveillance, we relieved the surveillance team about midnight uh, over at a place called um, the Moose Lodge in Des Plaines. And Gacy was in the Moose Lodge at that time. So Mike and I, being in uncharted waters, thought, hey, you know, it'd be a lot easier if we would just go inside he already knows that we're here. So Mike and I both went in the Moose Lodge and we saw Gacy right away. And he saw us walk in. We sat at a table, maybe three tables away from Gacy. And a short time later, the waitress approaches us with two beers and says, these beers on the gentleman over there, pointing to Gacy. About halfway through our beer, we sent Gacy. I think this is the Moose Lodge right here, guys. I went ahead and pulled it up for y'all real quick. This is uh, the Moose Lodge, the family fraternity which uh, I guess they serve food and it's some kind of place where you can go hang out. But this is, uh, this is it. Don't know if it's still in operation today. Google looks like it is in operation, but you never know nowadays. See a beer. So, so they're over here sending each other beers. That, that's how you know it's over surveillance. Hey, we're following you. Okay, cool. You're following me. Here's a beer. <laughs> we reciprocated. And... Uh... When it was time for him to leave, he got up. The place was just starting to close up, and he walks past us, and he says, hey, would you guys like to go to breakfast somewhere? Right around the corner was a place called the Pot and Pan Restaurant. And so we went in there. In case he went in, he sat down, and we were kind of sitting off the corner a little bit away from him. And 
started talking back and forth. He said, why don't you guys come on and sit down with me? So from that point on, when he went into a public place, uh, we would go in there with him. So, <laughs> so they're following him around. Overt surveillance. Hey, we suspect you being a fucking crazy ass killer. We found some stuff in your house. You know what, bro? We're going to follow you. Then could you imagine the guy comes up to you? Hey, man, I know you guys are following me, but you know what? You want to have some food? You want a beer? Oh, sure. Cool. <laughs> Just fucking sit down <laughs> with the cops that are fucking trying to put you in prison for the rest of your life, man. Hilarious. Yay! Technological chaos goes, is there any future case of possible to be done for Roman Polanski? I don't know who that is, but uh, yes, let's keep going. But yeah, this is a hilarious surveillance. The fact that they, they, they're over here having lunch with them, drinking beers with them. <laughs> but wait, guys, there's more. And we get into all kinds of conversations about what we're doing, uh, why we're following him. And he talks about his business, uh, uh, how successful he is. And he told us why he hired young kids. He says, you know, I, I got to tell you from experience, I know if I've hired a guy that's been around the block a few times, it's hard for me to train him because he's used to doing it a certain way. If I hire these young kids that don't have any experience, I can train them right from right from the start how to do it the way I want it done. Whoop. So he admits that he's hiring younger individuals for his business because they're easier to train. Mind you guys, he doesn't know that the police have identified a bunch of young individual young men that went missing that worked for him. So this corroborates evidence that they already have guys so what they're doing they're just compiling probable cause compiling probable cause because at this point they want to search his house again guys okay oh, he thought he was getting leverage by inviting them over yeah he <laughs> thought but he didn't know what the police knew so stupid but in the back of their minds oh you're hiring a bunch of young guys well this matches up with this information that we got of all these missing persons so the police were very smart so this over surveillance ends up working in their favor so let's keep going here Explore Miami goes, have you thought about doing the Big Meech case? Yes, I've already been researching the Big Meech case, BMF. Uh, I will be doing that very well, uh, very soon. Guys, we got 3,000 plus of y'all watching on YouTube. Uh, you guys could be anywhere else, but you're here with me, so thank you very much. Uh, we got 2.1K likes. Guys, give me the 3,000. I'd really appreciate that. Like I said before, this took a lot of work. I might get turned off anytime. I probably won't get monetized on this video because, you know, we're discussing serial killers and we got a documentary we're reacting to. So go ahead and like the video, guys. Let's push it through the algo. He was... You know, a real braggers, and he would imply all his contacts that he had in the city of Chicago. He uh, had a lot of friends out of Chicago Police Department. He would just at times give you kind of tidbits of what he had about all his contacts. He never really said, "Oh, well, they've done this for me." It's more like planning to see that if he needs help, he knows where to go to get it. Well, because of his political connections, John felt he had Teflon coating. He could get away with anything. That's what I've learned is like, oh, my God. There's now, let me tell you guys this from my personal experience. Interviewing guys like like dealing with criminals that are like very, um, how do I say this, very pompous like this. I think that they're untouchable and I know people and I know that or like to name drop or like to talk a lot. You just shut up and let them talk. Right. And you just sit there and, you know. You just think in your head, okay, I'm just going to write this shit down in my head or whatever it may be. Or as soon as I get to back to my car, I'm going to write this shit down, put it in a report. You just document everything. Let them talk, man. Let them talk because they might slip up and say the wrong thing. Like I said before, they he didn't know 
that they knew that he had had a bunch of young guys that went missing that worked for him. So that was a big clue for them, and they were able to piece the things together later on. So with people like this that like to run their mouth, you just let them flap their guns. You know what I'm saying? So this was huge. And the fact that he wants to go in and be like, I know all these political people, blah, 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 blah. Um, it works in his favor as well because he that what that does is it creates this false sense of security. Okay, he thinks he's untouchable. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and fast forward in the documentary, guys, to um, them going ahead and trying to get a second search warrant, okay, after they get some more evidence, okay? All right, let me... Uh, Ken was having the film project. So this is um, the piece of evidence I told you guys about before with that film, right? So, and the evidence that they were able to get to use to um, help them get the second search warrant. L to my first super chat, Franklin. What is strange is no worries, you had bro. 20 trained officers that came into the house supposedly went down in the crawl space, crawled around. There was no Lurch is right. Yeah, police uh, detectives typically always know the answers to the questions they're asking. Just don't say shit, guys. Yeah, don't talk to the police, guys. <laughs> no mounds of dirt. There was no odor. There was no nothing. I never feared anybody going down the crawl space. Cap. Now the team is starting to put a little bit of pressure on Gacy, and uh, he seems very agitated. So we're starting to get to him, and we can tell. When we first started the surveillance, Gacy seemed to be able to operate like on three or four hours sleep. But as the investigation went on and he was becoming more and more worried, he was getting virtually no sleep. And it was very visible, you know, his body language and his posture, everything. He looked horrible. So the police, the 24-7 surveillance was starting to put some serious pressure on him. He's about to crack. He was just transformed from this effervescent guy to a, you know, a beaten man. The police uh, wanted to um, get a second search warrant. The main obstacle was there was already a search warrant that had been executed. So we needed fresh probable cause. The probable cause for the second warrant was an amalgamation of about two or three pieces of evidence. Okay, guys, pay attention. This is what they used to get the second search warrant. And actually, matter of fact, you know what? Let's do a quick recap while we're here, all right? So if you're just joining us, we got 3,000 plus y'all in here. Let's rewind and go through all the facts of the case so far. So in the beginning part of the podcast, we went over John Wayne Gacy's background, his uh, disapproval from his father, growing up sexually confused, wanting to dress up as a woman, not necessarily understanding if he likes girls or guys, sexual deviance from having sexual prostitutes, having stag films, being involved with the JCs. When he moves to Iowa, he ends up getting arrested and convicted for sodomy. He only serves about a year and a half for the crime, assaulting a 15-year-old boy. He ends up moving to Illinois after starting a business um, after leaving being a chef and starting that business. He starts earning about a million dollars a year. He's doing a bunch of renovation type work, remodeling, painting, etc. cetera, uh, with PDM. He uses young boys as cheap labor for his business. A bunch of these young boys that he employs end up going missing. However, a lot of them come from broken families and or runaways, prostitutes, whatever it may be. So people don't necessarily go looking for them to the same level. Uh, in December 11, 1978, he ends up uh, a boy goes missing named Robert Peace. That guy ended up coming from a good family, though. The police put a uh, the family puts an enormous amount of pressure on the police to go find him. Police go ahead and do a search warrant on December 13th, go looking in his house. They don't find him. However, they buy to find a bunch of evidence, which you guys are going to see here right now, chron chronicled, uh, that is going to lead them uh, to some shocking discoveries here in a little bit. So uh, that was a quick little recap. We got 2.2K uh, likes right now, guys. Get us up to 3,000. There's 3,083 you guys watching total on YouTube, and then another 300 you guys watching on Twitch. So uh, hopefully the stream doesn't go out. 
But let's get back into it. Now they're getting the second search warrant, guys, which actually, you know what? Matter of fact, I have something here for y'all real fast. This is the second search warrant right here. So a search warrant was issued on December 21st. Uh, let me share the screen with you guys. Um, let me enlarge it real fast for you guys. You guys should be able to see that. Okay. And guys like this goddamn video. Ain't nobody else giving y'all this kind of sauce. A search warrant issued on December 21st, 1978, authorized the police to search defendant's home for the remains of the body of Robert P. So remember, they were looking for him before, right, to try to find him alive. But at this point, they think he's dead. All right. Now we're about 10 days after the fact. The underlying complaint for the warrant prepared by Lieutenant Kazasak basically reiterated the facts contained in the first complaint for search warrant and stated, recovered during that search warrant pursuant to December 13th, was a customer receipt number 36119 from a film developing envelope with the name and address of Neeson's Pharmacy stamped on it in ink. Further investigation revealed that this receipt has last been in possession of Robert Peace immediately prior to the time he had disappeared. The complaint also stated that Officer Robert Schultz had informed Lieutenant Kazansack that he had been invited into defendant's home by defendant while on the surveillance unit assigned to watch defendant and that while inside, he detected an odor similar to that of a putrefied human body. Officer Schultz indicated that he had smelled the odor of at least 40 putrefied human bodies and that the smell in defendant's home was similar. Defendant's first two arguments concerning this contention. Uh, okay, so this is him like arguing it, but this was the basis under which they go went ahead and got the second search warrant, guys. So let's go ahead and uh, see how it's documented in the documentary. One was so that's that class ring from uh, that guy Zick that they missed and couldn't find. Class ring that Gacy probably should not have had. Another uh, item of evidence found in the Gacy house was a photo slip, uh, the kind when people used to take pictures with film, not in Rob Peace's name, but in a, the name of a young lady named Kim Byers who worked at the drugstore. And if you guys remember, Kim Byers was used, in, her name came up in the first search warrant where she was saying that she had last seen Rob Peace with, um, with your boy, uh, Gacy. Kim Byers worked at the cash register at the Nissan Pharmacy, and she was at the front of the store right by the front door. Kim Byers was going to step outside and have a break, and she borrowed Rob P's coat. And just before she went outside, she took her film and was having the film process, got a receipt, put the receipt in the pocket of P's coat. That's the same receipt that we found in Gacy's trash. So that tied Peace to Gacy's house. Bam. The link. That's a big, big link and a big, big find. The third thing as I recall, was uh, a conversation I had with the police officers. Now, this is the prosecutor, guys, here. He was the one that, you know, got the search warrant for the police. The police write the search warrant, give it to the prosecutor. Prosecutor looks it over, and he's like, okay, this is good. They go to the judge, they get assigned. So he's involved in the investigation, and he was involved in prosecuting your boy, uh, Gacy. So, well, check this out, guys. You guys are going to hear about this, this smell, this odor, how they were able to come to find it. And... They were doing surveillance of Gacy. Uh, it was very, very cold that winter, and that's an important fact because they would sit right outside of his house in the unmarked police car. Gacy, uh, who was full of hubris and arrogance, would sometimes invite them in to use the restroom and warm up. The second surveillance team, which was Bob Schultz and Ron Robinson, um, they pretty much did the same things that we did. You know, they followed them. They had conversations with Gacy. Uh, they stayed with him wherever. This particular day, Gacy says to Schultz and Robinson, he says, 
hey, you guys want to have dinner at my place? And they looked at each other and said, sure. Oh, shit. <laughs> Let's see what ends up happening here. <laughs> so they follow Gacy over to his house, go in there, Gacy's starting to prepare dinner for him. And while they're in there, Schultz says, hey, I got to go to the bathroom. So I went into the, the bathroom and what happened? And while he was in there, the heat kicked on. Uh-oh. Disperse the and stench. when the heat kicks on, Schultz smells this horrific smell that he said he could only equate to the county morgue. He thought that the odor reminded him of what he had smelled uh, in his experience as a patrolman, the odor of decaying flesh. When I uh, heard that, I uh, said, I think we have probable cause. Bam. And they went ahead and they were able to get the search warrant. And you guys got to, here's the thing, guys. Like, a dead body, it's an unmistakable smell. So when they turned the heat on, remember, guys, he didn't smell the dead body before because they didn't have the heat on when they did the first search warrant. Gacy wasn't friendly with them at this point. Remember, he was back at the police station, right, getting interviewed by that guy, you know, and they were buttering up so that they were going ahead and try to get the probable cause. So when they went in the house the first time, it was cold as hell in there and the, the heat wasn't on. So when he invites them into the house this time, the heat's on, he's preparing food, etc. So what does that do? Well, the bodies are buried underneath the home, which obviously deals with the ventilation system. So when the heat comes on, it amplifies the smell of the dead bodies, right? Anyone that lives in cold weather understands that cold weather stif uh, you know, stifles uh, putrid smells, but heat amplifies it. So when the heat came on, the officer with his training experience is like, yo, this smells like fucking dead bodies, etc." So they're able to use that uh, as a fact, put in the search warrant, and bam, they were able to go ahead and uh, establish enough probable cause. They probably would have even had enough probable cause maybe without uh, the smell of the odor from all the other stuff there, the receipts, the... Um, the rings, the shackles, etc. Uh, you have something? Um, was he burying them in the backyard or under, literally under the house? All over the place, all oh, over the property, wherever they could. Yeah, fit. <laughs> yeah. Some yeah. Because he 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 did like thirty, like a thirty something. Yeah, thirty three, right? Thirty three, and then I think they found twenty six or twenty seven of them in the house. So yeah, at some point it's like whatever you can fit. Yeah, and then <laughs> he dumped like another five in the river because he ran out of space. Yeah, that's crazy. Which we're gonna talk about that here in a second. Um, I'm laughing but yeah. as a coping mechanism. It's it's fucked up. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so anyway, uh, Denny Ace goes. Uh, do you think in er uh, in an era where police departments didn't share to share together and there was no internet serial killers back then were stupid to get caught? Uh, no, man. I mean, they just had technology wasn't against them like it is today. You know, it's much easier for you to get caught by law enforcement now because law enforcement has so many sophisticated techniques to try to get you. I'll give, give an example. Like YNW Melly, you guys know they're going to pretty much. Uh, he's going to probably get found guilty off the phone evidence alone. The fact that, you know, he had his phone with him the entire time and they just basically use geolocation data to put him at the scene of the crime. So technology nowadays makes it a lot harder for criminals to get away. Um, and I, and if you guys want, I did a whole breakdown on the YNW Melly case, why he's going to, he's going to get found guilty. Like there's no way he's beating that case. I don't know why people keep saying that. I love Melly's music, but you got to be a realist. He's not beating that case. Um, any other chats before I get back into it? Nope. Okay. So, uh, so, Gacy invites the police officers to his home for dinner, turns on the heat. One of the police officers goes into the bathroom, smells the putrid smell of decaying bodies, and uh, as well as the other stuff that they found at the house, the class ring, the books, the underwear from other men, the um, uh, the shackles, etc. Uh, so let's run it. 
Oh, and by the way, guys, go ahead and do me a quick favor. Like the goddamn video. I only see 2.3K likes, but there's 3,000 plus y'all in here. So they go ahead and they apply for a search warrant. Complaint for search warrant. After I prepared the uh, search warrant with the uh, police officers from Des Plaines, it was already getting uh, into the late afternoon, early evening. So I went home. I had dinner with my grandmother, went uh, back to my place, fell asleep. All was fine until about five in the morning when I received a telephone call from Assistant State's Attorney Mike Corkell, who told me, uh, get your ass out of bed and over to the police station. We found bones. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. So they find bones at the house, guys. I made several trips to the house during the excavation. The, uh, Extension there was overwhelming. The police officers uh, would wear kerchiefs around their uh, nose and mouth. And I remember seeing what they put in body bags. I had seen crime victims before, dead people, but nothing like this. In hindsight, Everything is very, very clear. But as you're going through it, you're trying to figure out how could he take victim after victim from the same streets and not get caught? And the only answer you come to is that someone was looking the other way. This man could have been stopped. And I know I can see some of you guys in the comments saying, yo, this video is five hours long. Is five hours long. Don't worry, guys. We're not going to watch all five hours. What I did was I went ahead and summarized the most important parts for you guys so you guys can enjoy and get all the information that you need to get that's pertinent, okay? The clowning was relaxation. Okay. Well, you know what? I'll play this part here. He talks about being a clown uh, and why he did it. So um, I'll give you guys a little bonus. I was going to play this. Let's play it. I enjoyed entertaining kids. Like some people are, uh, you know, they... They unwind in different ways, either either we're going out drinking or that. I could put on clown makeup and I was relaxed. And I enjoyed doing it. I it was uh, it, I, twice. A, it was only twice a month that I did yeah, it. Yeah, this so was not using for a lure to to draw kids to you. Is is the no? We would visit uh, different hospitals and uh, entertain the children there. And we didn't entertain them with handcuffs or anything like that. All we used was uh, balloon animals and small toys and stuff like that. But we also did parades. And in the summertime, like on 4th of July, I used to be in four parades in one day. I've always told people when, when I got into clown makeup, I regressed into childhood. It was fun being a clown because you could you, you could be yourself or, or just let yourself go and act a fool. You could be slapstick and funny and have a good time. That's why I always enjoyed clowning. Clowning has taken a bad name I, because of what they've used in my case. That's, oh my god yeah yeah I, no clowning my friend is taking a bad case because you killed 33 plus people while being a clown and here's the other thing too guys he admitted to investigators while he was a clown that the reason why he liked this so much is because he was able to like you know smack girls on the ass and get away with certain things and he even said it you can get away with murder as a clown because people are thinking like oh yeah you know you're just being funny being an entertainer so you can get away with certain things that you would never be able to get in costume and i think in a way um for him he was thinking like, yo, you know what? I'm a clown. I, this will protect me in real life. So, uh, and I think that's why he was so brazen with his murders and got away with it for so long. You know, that was a portion that, that was, I think that went into his mind to think 
you know, this is going to keep me from getting caught. Well, there might be. I think there's got to be some psychology to it, too, because in the interview, he just said that he did it because it made him regress like regress in age so yeah. it probably brought him back to his childhood and, and it was almost like he was making it more appropriate it, maybe it, well, to well, deal with it or yeah making it more appropriate or just like almost creating new memories to block off all the shitty childhood that he had with his dad mm-hmm. i think is yeah that's that an, yeah there's some many, many different i'm sure it's very complex as to why um but guys do me a quick favor like the video 2.4k likes uh, we got 3100 y'all watching right now on youtube thank you so much you could be anywhere else but you're here with us um, all right, let's get back into the video. Uh, now um, we're going to go ahead into uh, where he uh, makes a confession, guys, okay? So now at this point, they've done the second search warrant. They found the bodies. The walls are closing in on your boy, John Wayne Gacy, okay? John Gacy was Sam Amorati's first private client. So now he secures defense counsel. Yeah, it was one hell of a way to start your career in private practice. Most of our work, obviously, as surveillance team was outside. So Casey is in the attorney's office. And the next thing we know, it's three o'clock in the morning or something like that. One of the attorneys comes out the front door and waves Mike over and says, hey, I know it's super cold out there. Why don't you guys come on in? It's too brutal for you guys to be out there all night. Now, guys, that's a red flag. The defense counsel is letting you guys, because remember, guys, they're still, they still have them on a 24-hour surveillance. So they see them go into a lawyer's office. Obviously, they can't go in because it's privileged. Uh, environment, right? You can't listen to any private conversations between a suspect and their lawyer. However, the defense counsel comes out and tells you, hey, it's cold out there, guys. Why don't you guys come in? So at this point, they're probably like, what the fuck? Sun's off here. Why are y'all inviting us in? What? We're the, we're the ops. Why? What the fuck? So let's see what happens here. A clown slap my girl's back. He's catching hands. <laughs> Shout out to Isaiah. <laughs> Denny Ace, in years uh, being law enforcement, do you have any modern day serial killers you dealt with? I really can't think of any modern day serials. I was a Fed guys. Feds don't investigate a serial killers. That's typically the local police. Uh, the Feds only come in maybe to uh, get, give some assistance, but the local police almost always handle um, serial killers and premeditated murder. Hey, Mar, showing my support between uh, Ben W with FNF since uh, 11, 2020. Okay, since so November 2020. Admire your discipline, hard work, by the way. Uh, tell Chris I want my $10 refund. LOL. Greetings from Boston. <laughs> I appreciate that, bro. Seeing what led up to this point, we talked to each other and say, you think maybe he confessed to his attorneys and they're a little concerned that they're in there with him all by himself? So they're even freaking out. Like, why, why are they calling the police in? So they go in. And uh, said, hey, that's a darn good possibility. So we decided, okay, we'll come in there under one condition. We have to be able to see Gacy. So they get a couple of chairs under Whatever you guys want, we'll get for you. They bring a bottle of booze out here, have a drink on us, and, and I just couldn't do enough for us. And we still hadn't seen Gacy. The attorneys gingerly bring Gacy out, and it looked like he was the walking dead. His eyes were closed, he was slouched over, and it looked like he was actually sleeping. So he laid him up. Mind you guys, he's been under police surveillance forever. He's starting to get stressed out. They're searching his house, they're interviewing him, all this other stuff. You know, he's stressed. He's like, damn, I'm about to go down for this. So, and he's been drinking. So, Let's see what happens here. On the front couch, we could see him through the glass, and we were talking to the attorneys about what we have seen over this 10 days of following him, that this guy is dangerous. We both had this kind of look on our face and stepped back and said, well, just be careful, because when he wakes up, you never know what he's going to do. We've been told that he gets very violent, he can hurt people, and just very erratic when he wakes up. 
and they get this very shocked look on their face. Their eyes were like the size of saucers. Believe this or not, the attorney said, guys, if he tries to leave, shoot his tires out. Wait, what? Stupid. (laughs) Yo, if he leaves, shoot his tires out. That's his defense counsel saying this, guys. So that should tell you guys right then and there that they're probably even scared for this life, for their life. Him coming in probably made some kind of a mission, yo, uh, or, or admission, excuse me, like, yo, I killed a bunch of people, blah, blah, blah. So they're like, what the fuck is going on here, bro? Like, yo, uh, police are outside. Yo, yo, can you guys come in real quick? The 70s were wild, man. We can't tell you anything. Stop. Don't let them leave. So there was something very urgent on their minds. Defense counsel saying don't let them leave, bro. <laughs> By the way, guys, there's only 2.4K likes, but there's 3,100 of you guys watching this stream right now on YouTube. I need you guys to stop being stupid and like the goddamn video, all right? Well, about, um, I don't know, 7.30 or 8 in the morning, Gacy gets up. He jumps up off this couch, a stare straight ahead. He had this wild man look in his eyes, flung the door open, jumped in his car and took off. We were like in hot pursuit on foot to get to our cars so we could follow them and not lose them. So they see his dumb ass just leave the place, run and drive off. So like, fuck that, we got to follow him. His first stop was um, a gas station, a shell station. He goes into the gas station and he's double handshaking and showing some emotion uh, with the owner. Casey didn't do that kind of thing. So that was kind of strange. It really looks almost like he's saying his last goodbyes. And at one point, he pulls out, a, I could see from a distance, looked like a bag of marijuana and put it in the pocket of this young man. What the fuck? So he, has a, so he has a pot of, a bag of weed, right? And guys, mind you, this is the 1970s. So Weed is still like very illegal back then, right? It's not like today in today's day and age where like, oh, weed is legalized. Medicinal marijuana. They didn't know none of that shit back in the seventies. They're like, weed, yo, bro, you going to jail? So the, he just fucking leaves a bag of weed on some dude. So this guy's drunk out of his mind. He's fucking going wild right now. So um, the police actually use this to their advantage, and you guys are gonna see here in a second. Which, by the way, I see two point five k likes. Get us up to three thousand, guys. Get the engagement up to ninety percent, so I don't gotta keep asking. God damn it. And. And again, he took off like a madman. We decided Mike would follow Gacy and I would go in the gas station. As soon as I walked in the gas station, this kid took the marijuana out of his pocket and like just about threw it at me and said, hey, I didn't buy this. I didn't, I didn't ask for it. He just gave it to me. He says he's giving his stuff away. We went from the, the gas station. We didn't know where we went. We ended up at David Graham's house. So he pulls up. He goes into Graham's house. They both come out. David Cram comes over to me and asks if it's all right if he drives Gacy's car. I said, I don't care. And that's one of the guys that lived at Gacy's house that, you know, gave him sexual favors and worked for him as well, which that's a whole other story. I won't get into it too much, but that's who that individual was. You got a driver's license. Don't drive like an idiot. You won't have any problem from us. So they drive from Cram's house over to DeLeo's restaurant in the Chicago area. And Gacy goes in. And then all of a sudden, Cram jumps out of his car and comes over to us and says, Gacy just told me he killed 33 kids. Oh, fucking shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. He goes ahead and confesses 33 kids. So that right there gives them even more probable cause. All right. So the guilt is too much to fucking bear. 
All right. What did I always say? Right. Um, uh, drunken words or sober thoughts. Amen. Let's keep going. Which, by the way, guys, I don't want to have to do this, but if I don't get the likes up to 3,000, I'm going to have to stop the stream. I really don't want to have to do that, right? So just like the goddamn video so that we can continue on with this awesome-ass content because y'all are not going to get breakdowns to this degree <laughs> and this detail anywhere else on the internet. Kevin Terrell, listening while at work, bartending, brother. I'm 15 minutes in. Appreciate these videos. My guy, I got you, my friend. I got you. So... Uh, yeah, guys, get us to 3,000 likes, man. That's that's all I ask. With 90% engagement at all times. All right, get us to 3,000 so I don't got to stop this stream because this is where it's about to get crazy, and I don't want to stop. All right, let me refresh the page real quick and see where the hell we're at. So he just confesses that he killed 33 kids to one of his associates. All right? Like the video, guys, or else I'm not going to continue, or I'm going to stop. I'll give you all another minute. We're at 2.6. Get us to 3,000. I realized the magnitude of this case at that point. And uh, Cram saying that Gacy's going to try to kill himself. He was going to go to his father's grave at a cemetery. Then he was going to commit suicide. Now, mind you, they're going to use this all later to show that he's not insane. Okay, guys, because they use this later on in trial to say, oh, he's insane. He shouldn't be put to death, etc. But this all shows that he feels sorry about what he did. But Dave obviously had a bag of marijuana. So, okay, let's just take him out of marijuana and we'll see what happens from there. I grab Bam. So they go ahead, right? And they're able to use the drug charge, right? Possession of marijuana to bring him into jail, which allows them to, you know, bide more time, get a chance to talk to him, interview him, et cetera, maybe get a confession. So him throwing that bag of weed on a random person worked in the police's advantage, which was very stupid on Gacy. Gacy, I pull him out of the car and throw him up against the trunk, you know, and pretty much yell at him that he's under arrest. And uh, that was just for the marijuana. And we knew that the investigators were seeking a second search warrant. We put handcuffs on him and put him in the back of our car and drove to the station. And shortly after being at the station, Gacy complained of chest pains. So they took him to the emergency room at Holy Family Hospital. And just so you guys know, this always happens. I'll tell you guys from my personal experience. Anytime you fucking arrest somebody, the first thing they say, oh, bro, I got pain. I'm sick. I feel like shit, man. Yo, I'm having a seizure or something like that. They always want to go to the hospital, man. They wanted to, they want to try to you know, prevent the inevitable, that they're going to jail. They're going to probably spend a significant amount of time there. They fucked up. They're caught red-handed. This always happens, right? I can't tell you how many times where I arrested somebody and they'll be like, bro, I don't feel good. And I got to fucking take them to the jail, to, to the hospital. Bro, there is nothing worse than taking someone to the hospital. Let me take you guys through a story time real quick. I remember this back like fucking yesterday. Back in like 2016, I, I arrested this guy for smuggling, right? And we knew he was fine. You know what I mean? He knew he was going to do a significant amount of time. He got caught with a bunch of um, illegal aliens, some drugs. And uh, one of the other things, too, was that he was caught smuggling minors, which when you when you oh. get caught smuggling minors, guys, and they're put in an unsafe situation, you get sentencing enhancements. And this guy had already been caught smuggling multiple times before. So he knew he was going to go in for a significant amount of time. And here's the thing with the feds. You don't get good behavior and get out on parole 18 months in. No, you're doing 80 to 90 percent of your time. So this guy knew he was fucked. So after he gets arrested, you know, he does what we call the, the Mexican heart attack. Right. Remember, I was in Laredo, Texas. And. 
oh, bro, I don't feel good, blah, blah. So he had to take his ass out of the hospital and take him to the emergency room. And I went in there for hours. And here's the thing. He's a prisoner. So you got to take his ass. You handcuff him to the chair. You're just sitting there with him babysitting his ass. Everyone's looking at you all crazy. Like, what the fuck is going on here? Like, yo, what, what's going on? Like, what? What? Like, what? What the fuck is going on? What? And you just look wild, right? What the fuck? So he babysit his ass. Mind you, it's like 2 in the morning. He doesn't get to see the doctor until like 3 or 4. And then he goes, maybe 5, 10 minutes. Oh, he's fine. They do a check on him. He's fine. So I get the clearance, and then I bring him to the jail. And the reason why, guys, is because... The marshals won't take the prisoner from you unless they're cleared from a doctor if they tell you that they have issues with them. The marshals aren't going to sit there and do all the checks. They're like, fuck that shit. We don't want the liability. You go get them cleared and then bring them back. Because anytime you arrest a federal prisoner, the marshals are pretty much the jailers. And they're not going to take the body or the prisoner unless he's of good health because they don't want the liability. So this happens often, guys, where someone is arrested for a serious crime and then they make up some bullshit excuse and want to go to the hospital. So <laughs> you said Mexican heart attack. Though. Yeah, that's the what we used to call it. Uh, Man, is that common? That sucks. Yeah, it's it, it, in Laredo. That's what we used to call it. On behalf of Mexicans, yeah. I apologize. Yeah, yeah. On behalf of all all the the ways out there. The ways. Um. But anyway, let's uh let's continue on, guys. Uh, what are we at here? We're at two point seven k likes. Let's see here, guys. Get us to three thousand, okay? Because shit's about to get real here. We're at two point seven. All right. Do I really have to stop the stream right now? Am I gonna have to stop the fucking stream, guys? I hope not. You know what? I'm going to stop the stream until you guys get us to 3,000 likes. We got 3,100 of y'all in here. I see 2.8, 200 more likes. I'm going to continue the stream. I hate that I have to do this shit, right? If you guys just liked the video from the beginning and your way in, we would be fine. But now I'm going to just have Mia tell you guys a really bad joke. Go ahead. You got a bad joke for them? Give them a knock knock joke or something. I don't know. Oh, I'm not good at jokes. I'm not a – women aren't funny. That's not our thing. <laughs> <laughs> don't. What are your thoughts on female comedians? Do you think they're funny? Uh, you know, Ali Wong – is the only female comedian that I think is is worth listening to. Does she make sex jokes? I yes, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> That's all female comedians do is make sex jokes. And it works. You I think guess. so? I don't know. I mean, it's uh, people like to laugh at vaginas. Fair so enough. It kind of works. Yeah, we're having a goddamn intermission. <laughs> Until we get 3,000 likes, I am not going to like this guy. I'm not going to continue the stream. Oh, someone in here saying W opinion. for you saying that women are funny. <laughs> Yes, just so you guys know, Mia is a raging misogynist, okay? (laughs) She is. She has internalized misogyny. She is a misogynist. All she does is talk shit about women. She actually thinks women deserve less more than I do. That's not true. You're going to break my client relationships. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, guys, like the video. Until we get 3,000 likes, I'm not going to continue. I see 2.9, just 100 more, and then we will continue on with the stream. I hate to to have to do this, but this is what we've come to because... People don't appreciate the content. It takes a lot of time. We're at 3K? Oh, no. Let me refresh the page real quick. Someone in the chat put 3K. Let's see here. No, we're at 2.9, bro. I don't see 3,000. Once we hit 3,000, I'll continue on. 3,000, my ninjas. You guys that are over there watching on Twitch, go ahead and open up a YouTube tab. Hit the like button real quick, and then uh, we'll keep going. And the reason why I'm live on Twitch, guys, is in case YouTube takes down my stream, we'll be able to, uh, you know, keep going. Are we at 3K? Nope, still at 2.9, guys. <laughs> Someone, Danny, Danny XO goes, uh, L chat, y'all lame as fuck. Yeah, I, I don't know why people just don't like the video, bro. It's very, very simple. Just like the video and, and you know, we'll continue on. <laughs> Does she need a green card? <laughs> no, I'm the, I'm the anchor baby. She's, uh, yeah. I, oh, I gave, yeah, you are I the anchor baby. I gave everyone the green card. She's the one that got them the card. She is the card. She is the card. Uh, still at 2.9k likes, guys. 
it, it's still at 2.9k. We need 3,000, man. I hate doing this, man. Uh, I might have to start playing uh, some annoying dial-up music as the late, great Kevin Samuels used to do back in the day. Um, let's see here. I see 2.9. All right, we hit 3k. Fantastic, man. Don DeMarco. Take that one up. All right, so they arrest John Wayne Gacy, guys, right, for marijuana possession. And then he says, yo, I feel like shit. I need to go to the hospital. Let's see what happens next. They told him at the hospital, just give him the whole screening. Whatever you got to do. They wanted him there as long as they could until they got to executing of the second search warrant. Uh, Mike stays back at the station. I go up to sit with Gacy. And not long after we were there, he said, hey, here's a call for you, Dave. So I got on the phone. It was because uh, Cap- I have to babysit him while he's at the hospital. Right. So they're doing the second search warrant, guys, while he's simultaneously at the hospital with Gacy. Right. So watch this. And Kozenczak over at Gacy's house. And they said, hey, we just executed the second search warrant. We went in the crawl space and the very first shovel of dirt that we dug into, we found bones down there. Human remains. Oh, shit. So at that point is when I arrested Gacy for murder. Gacy had been a successful... And this happened, I think, on December 21st, guys, is when they arrested him officially for murder. Or 22nd. I'm going to double-check real quick. It was the early morning hours, I think, of the 21st or 22nd. Building contractor... A volunteer from the local JCs who entertained children as Pogo the Clown. He is charged with murder. Killed as many as 32. Teenage this grim investigation is expected... It's almost a sense of being in shock and disappointment. We were so hopeful that... Somehow, Rob Peace, you know, he found a life somewhere. But uh, at this point, we realized. All right, December 21st, 1978. So 10 days after Rob Peace's disappearance, they went ahead and arrested him for murder, guys. Originally for marijuana. And then while they're there babysitting him at the hospital because he had this little heart attack or whatever, um, the Koznak calls up the other guy and tells him, yo, we found uh, bones at the residence. And then, bam, they're able to officially arrest him for murder. A.K.A. Gotcha, bitch. You know, that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> Certainly, there was a cost of Casey's early release from prison and animals because had he done his full sentence, he would have been in prison till 78. The crimes never would have happened, and there would have been a lot less people that would have been affected by, by John Wayne Gacy. Gacy's dark secrets. The fact that this was a house of King Life goes, imagine Myron pissed as fuck staring at you for five hours in the hospital. Bro, yo, you don't even know, man. That shit. L, L, L. I would be mad as hell just sitting there. And then the then the doctor clears him in like five minutes. So I'm just like, fuck. Yeah, man. There's been so many times where I had to babysit prisoners at the hospital, bro. It is the worst. Death, a house of horror, was not known. They have found the decomposed remains in the dirt crawl space underneath Gacy's house. They expect to find many more. The minute authorities realized that there were bodies buried and they started prying up the floorboards, and that's when the secrets of John Wayne Gacy started to pour out of that house. Now, when the when the search warrants were affected in your case, uh, they did they did find an awful lot in the crawl space of your home, did they not? Well, yeah, I, I had offered to sell him. All right, let's see his response to this, guys. This is fucking ridiculous what he's about to say. What? Let's get into what it. What the fuck? In the house, because yeah. I, I thought there was nothing down in the crawl space. Yeah. I had never uh, had any qualms about him going down in the crawl space. Well, how many bodies were actually lo- located on the property and where? 
to my understanding, there was a total of 29 bodies or 28 bodies mm -hmm. were found on the property. 26, 27 of them under the house. And the rest? One was under the driveway, one was under the garage. So that, that makes a total of 29. Okay. Now, uh, from the standpoint of the arrest, when you were arrested in this, in this matter, uh, uh, this it's was... It's snowballed. It's, it's snowballed. Okay, what, what uh, was the date of that? It was 26 of them in the crawl space. The arrest, do you recall? Uh, December 22nd, 1978 is when I was arrested. And he's over here saying, yo, I, I didn't, well, he's saying December 22nd, the records are saying December 21st. It doesn't matter. Either way, it was the 21st, 22nd, pretty much the same thing. And on or about, right? That's how we look at it in the legal, in the legal format when we say something happened. But he says, yo, I don't know how they got there, which goes to show you guys how ri ridiculous he is. And there's zero remorse. He's just talking about it so casually older and okay so real quick i want you guys to we're going to talk real quick about how he killed his victims okay guys um and the way he did it man was was pretty goddamn evil um he used to call it the rope trick okay and i'm going to go ahead and show you guys a clip of this right here um nuts in general catch his sense of humor Shoelaces, huh? You're in trouble now. <laughs> Aren't you afraid sitting that close to me? What the hell? Oh, this is too long. Oh, you don't need it this long. Pause, Mo. Shout <laughs> out to Big Mo in the house, by the way. Down the With the suspect comment. Okay. I had a rosary, which I carried in my pocket. I've always carried a rosary. It was my communion uh, rosary. They said, well, what, what kind of... Uh, a knot do you use? I said, what do you mean knot? When I tie things up, I, I says, uh, depending on what I'm using it for, I said, the only thing I ever learned was from Boy Scouts is a tourniquet knot. He said, well, show us what that is. So I took, at that time, it, and again, it's together, but in order to demonstrate it here, I took. And sorry, guys, for the sound, but you know, obviously, this is old-ass video. <laughs> the rosary, and I said, well, here, you, you put it around. Sorry, trying to do this. Why don't you put your hand out? Okay, here. Oh, hell nah, bro. I'm on. <laughs> I'm good. I'm, I'm nah, bro. I am good. I'm not. Uh, nah. Hell nah. That, you know that anchor was fucking like, uh, what am I doing right now? What? <laughs> oh. I told him, I said, here, all you do is you, you wrap it around. You put one knot in it. And I said, then you put a second knot in it. Okay? Mm -hmm. I said, then you take a stick and stick it in here, and you just turn this. And I said, it causes an tourniquet. I said, that's the only knot I ever learned. Precisely the kind of knot found on the ropes wrapped around the necks of the victims found under the house on Summerdale. Yeah, so he used to do, use a tourniquet knot, guys, on his victims, right? And uh, it was what he learned when he was a Boy Scout. And basically, just turn it like this and tighten it. And one of the creepy things he would do, guys, is he would recite this Bible verse right here. And it's... Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly. You're the resident Christian here, right, uh, Mia? Is it in Spanish? Or? It's Psalm 23. Psalm. You mean Psalm? Psalm. Okay, my bad. I'm Muslim, bro. Uh, that's my excuse. I don't. I don't know this stuff. But it goes here. This is what he would recite when he would kill them, guys. So when he's putting the tourniquet not on their hands and on their neck to kill them, right, drowning them, doing all the crazy things that he would do, he would recite this verse: "The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want. He maketh, um, he maketh me lie." 
uh, sorry, he maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yeah, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness, uh, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And he would typically recite this verse, guys, as he was killing his victims. It, it sounds like that's him asking for forgiveness. Like that's kind of what that is. That is that what it I is? I mean, it's not asking for forgiveness, but it's it's almost saying that he is submitting to God. Yeah, like almost as he's committing as, one of the worst sins right, you can commit. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So fucking L for him reciting Bible verses while killing innocent individuals. Um, he maketh me gag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Evil Boo goes, Myron, the feds are so clever. I caught a human traffic case when I was younger, and my own public defender brought in a fed to interview me. The only reason I noticed was because of my knowledge. Feds always win. Hashtag Goku. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so now, guys, we're going to go ahead and get into the trial. So now that you guys know, and, and, and that was his methodology, guys. He would basically, you know, invite people that work for him, male prostitutes, people that came from uh, disheveled backgrounds, you know, to his house on the promise of drugs, alcohol, marijuana. Um, and he would, you know, either do, the, you know, the tourniquet trick where he would uh, um, tie them up with ropes or he would do the handcuff trick. Right. Because remember, he was a clown and he would do and he was lying in the interview saying like, oh, I don't do the handcuff trick with kids at the hospital. No, he absolutely used to do that handcuff trick at the hospital. And what he would do is he would get, get lure the people to his house, do the show them the handcuff trick while they're drunk. They remember he worked. These people work for him. They trusted him. He was he used all these different factors and traits about himself to be more trustworthy. Oh, I'm involved in politics. You know, I donate to charity. Oh, I'm a clown. I donate my time to sick kids at the hospital. Oh, I'm your boss. You know, I run a very reputable business. You know, he had pictures of himself with politicians at his home. He had all these traits that made him seem like a trustable person. So, you know, 16, 17 years old, it's your boss. He wants to have some beers with you. You don't think that he's a raging homosexual serial killer. So, He's like, yo, let me show you this trick that I used to run with the kids at the hospital. You know, he gives you the handcuffs. He, he put the handcuffs on himself first, and he would uh, be able to get himself out of the handcuff, but he kept the key in his hand, right? And uh, he would keep it in one of his fingers, right? Then he would do the trick on the guy, but he would never unhandcuff him, and then that's when the abuse started. He would handcuff them, and then from there, torture, abuse, and, and rape them for hours on end, sometimes day on end, and then eventually strangle and kill them. Um, and then he would recite that verse that I read to you guys as he was killing the individuals, which he was a sick, sadistic individual. But that's what he did, guys. Um, you know, so now we're going to fast forward to the trial. OK, February 6, 1980, guys, is when he goes on trial uh, for the state. All right. So let's go ahead and pull this bad boy back up and we're going to go ahead and fast forward to 248. I told you guys, man, I did all the research here so you guys don't have to worry, all right? This is going to probably be one of the best summaries of the John Wayne, John Wayne Gacy case you guys are going to find anywhere else on the internet, and I'll make sure that I put timestamps for y'all so you guys can enjoy this thing on the replay. So do me a favor, like the video. We work hard over here at Fresh and Fit slash Fed It, and uh, yeah, man, let's keep going. It was very emotional, people sobbing. Most of them were parents, and here they're sitting there listening to testimony on how their child got killed. You know, it's nothing anybody wants to hear. 
One witness fainted on the stand when the prosecution team showed her a bracelet belonging to her son. You have two years to prepare for this, but I had no clue that we had to go on the stand and identify Gacy. That was very eerie to me. And my dad, the day that he had to get up on the stand, my father kept crying. My mother kept saying, you know, buck up, you can do this. And that was the first or the second day. My dad never went again after that. Obviously, you know, you can only imagine the, the, the trauma from facing the murderer of your child that had been gone missing for years. And you're finally able to face him in court. I mean, for some people, that's unbearable, you know, grown men crying. And these are some of these are all the victims. And, you know, real quick, just see, so I'll show you real quick. Um, all the victims uh, John Wayne Gacy uh, had. Uh, don't make fun of the websites. All gaylong.com, whatever. I don't know. But for some odd reason, they have all. These are his victims right here, guys, right? Um, and he committed his first murder on honor about January 3rd, 1972 with Timothy Jack McCoy. He stabbed him, guys. Um, and then, you know, obviously the onslaught continued with all these other individuals. Wow. And um, they only identified 28 of the all 33. Right, so rest in peace to all these individuals. Um, here are their names right here, guys. Okay, you can go ahead. Let me enlarge it a little bit so, uh, so you guys can go ahead and pause pause the screen if you need to. But yeah, these rest in peace to all these individuals that were murdered by this fucking maniac. All of them were, you know, between. Let me let's look here. What were their ages? They were all teenagers. Yeah, all teenagers, man. The youngest here that I see is fourteen, and the oldest I see here was twenty. So, yeah, craziness, man, craziness. Early on, we were using this big exhibit with three-sided frames to put all the life and death photos in while the victims were uh, parents or whatever were testifying. And after we did five or six of them, the defense objected. Yeah, the reason why they objected was because it was they, they're going to basically the argument they're going to make, guys, is that, oh, this is unduly suggestive, which is basically an argument that like, yo, you guys are like going a little bit too hard to like get an emotional um, reaction from the jury and from the witnesses, etc. This makes my client look bad. It's ridiculous for you to put all these victims here. We haven't you haven't been able to prove that they're necessarily victims yet. This is what the trial is for. So um, so this is how the, the prosecution responds. And the judge said. All right, here's the rule. State, if you're talking about a particular victim and you want to use that board, you can have that victim's photo in the board, but none other. When you get to closing arguments, you can do whatever you want. Fine, Judge. So we, when we finish, we now have a board with 22 empty frames. It looked to me like 22 open graves. There were some victims who were still not identified. We went to trial on all 33 murders, 22 being identified at the time that we went to trial. So they only knew 22 of them. Obviously, you know, later on with forensics and DNA analysis, etc., they were able to identify 27. Um, but at the time, they only had 22. But some were nameless. We also had the crawl space opening sought out so we could use this as an exhibit in court, became one of my biggest tools, having that crawl space opening available as an exhibit. That's a crazy piece of evidence that they were able to use in their advantage to illustrate to the, to the, you know, to the jury, yo, look at this crazy guy. He had all the bodies 
under this crawl space, right? Which would speak to the sadistic nature and heinousness of the crimes. Uh, we got here, Evil Boo 417. Myron, do you plan on covering Richard Ramirez, a.k.a. Oh, wait, and he says, also shout out to Andrew Tate. Yeah, shout out to Andrew Tate. Uh, Richard Ramirez, if I'm not mistaken, is that the uh, Night night uh, Stalker? Yes. That's correct. the Night Stalker guy, right? Mm -hmm. I will do him. Don't worry, guys. I will do him oh, as well. That would be a good one. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoy the serial killer streams. John Gacy sat erect in his chair today, showing no apparent emotion as the prosecution team continued to call parents of the alleged victims. They were naming all the victims. Their pictures were there. And they were going through and putting a name to a face for the jury. And when they got to my brother, Gacy just kind of smirked and chuckled. You know, it's like he was silent the whole time, but with my brother, he laughed. Could you imagine that, bro? You got this fucking evil person <laughs> laughing uh, when they talk about your deceased brother that had went missing. Um, yeah, I mean, I would that would cause rage in me, man. I would turn into Scorpion in that bitch. Get over here! It was very difficult to look at him, but I remember seeing him sitting over there, and I kept thinking, boy, you really fooled so many people. I think he thought he would never be caught. Police told the court Gacy became friendly with the police surveillance team that trailed him as part of the investigation into the disappearance of 15-year-old Robert Peast. Gacy and I had this relationship from the surveillance. So he liked that detective the most and opened up to him, which is great when you're able to build rapport like that and people will confess to you. When you're, you're there and you're testifying, you're impacted by what you're saying and you're seeing a reaction to this jury which affects you too, I mean, because you, you're answering your questions honestly and describing in detail what John Gacy did. And let me tell you guys something from being on the stand, because I've testified hundreds of times, and they put you under oath, and when you're testifying in cases, um, especially when it's like uh, crimes that are pretty serious like this, uh, it's very difficult sometimes, right, as an investigator to be able to say the things that you want to say having the general public there because there's certain things that you become desensitized as law enforcement but when you in front of regular people and you talk about these things and you see the reactions it kind of brings you back it snaps you out of it out of your jargon slash your professionalism and you're like oh shit like it reminds you as to like a lot of the dark things you see on the job because remember the general public isn't used to seeing what law enforcement is seeing so i know where he's coming from when he's saying uh that i'm testifying to these things and looking at the jury's reactions i i feel that Please see where he's coming from. And unless you're on the job, you would never understand. Uh, you can see their reaction. One by one, the witness described how they found the remains of the victims. Some buried on top of others, many with a piece of cloth in the mouth, and some with ropes tied around the necks. We did learn at the trial, Casey would do different things to the boys and one of the things they said that he would do this trick with cuffs. And I know it came out that he did something with my brother's arms. And that's the trick that I told you guys about with the handcuffs, where he would handcuff himself, you know, that, that uh, you know, like his clown trick, Pogo the clown trick. But he kept the key secret right in his in his whether it was in his shirt or he would hide it with it between his fingers. 
And then you'd be like, look, I was able to get out. Then he would go ahead and put it on the unsuspecting victim. They wouldn't know that he had zero intention of untying that, uh, of, you know, unhandcuffing them. And then bam, you know, the torture and the, the killing would ensue after that. Put cuffs on him or something. And then he would put something on him so they would pass out. Casey could have had two personalities, but I don't care. Let's put it this way. I believe somebody has to be insane to do what he did, but that's too bad. You still killed 33 victims. And I don't care if you were insane or not. He, he was wrong. He was wrong to destroy 33 families. All right, shit's about to get crazy here in a second, guys. Um, you guys are about to see a survivor story. Let's go, Doc. It was becoming a, you know, a media frenzy for finding anything relating to it. The Chicago Tribune was the first to track me down. So this guy, Anthony Antonucci, uh, is a former employee and survivor from one of Gacy's attacks. This story is fucking crazy, guys. All right. So uh, grab your popcorn and uh, listen to this one. And uh, they interviewed me at the time. I believe the police read the story in the Tribune and brought me in for questioning. At some point, they told me that they would like me to testify, uh, you know, as a prosecution witness. The victims who survived their encounters with Gacy became a crucial piece of the case against him. And you guys can see our man 28 testifies that Gacy raped and tortured him. So there were some survivors. They described, you know, indescribable events. I came out, sat in, got sworn in, did what I did. My testimony was that one time in 1976, John came over in the evening. I was closer to 17 at that point. He knew my parents weren't home. See, he takes advantage of guys that don't have, you know, a strong family. Like, oh, your parents aren't home. Let me try to, you know, you know, hang out with you and do some uh, nefarious activities. It was about 10.30 at night. He said he had, uh, he had some uh, stag films. That's what they called them then. And it was on a, he had a little projector with him. He brought that in and he set that up. And then something he did, you know, he knew I was a high school wrestler. So he said, yeah, come on, big wrestler guy. He started wrestling around with me. And at one point... He gets a handcuff on one of my wrists. Oh shit! So he gets a handcuff on one of the ha on one of his wrists, man. So at this point, obviously, you know, you could imagine your adrenaline is fucking pumping, right? Like, what the hell is this guy trying to do? I fought valiantly, but he did get my other wrists in the handcuff, and he knocked me down to the floor. And just so you guys know, Gacy is about five foot eight, two hundred plus pounds. He's not small, okay? He's a big individual. He's fat as fuck. So obviously with his weight alone, 
He has some strength behind him. He unbuttoned my pants and pulled them down a little bit, but not my underwear. And then he left the room. And because I was fighting when he was trying to get that second cuff on me, I noticed that it wasn't very tight. So I was able to, to pull my hand, uh, you know, quite painfully to get it. I actually got out of the cuff. Scraped the skin in the process, but he got out the goddamn cuff. And uh, he came back into the room a couple minutes later, and I hit him with a double leg takedown. Hey! Uh, wrestling move. And Damn. just dropped him right to the floor. Get it. <laughs> I kept my weight on his back to keep him down. And I reached in his pocket, and I got the key to the handcuffs. And I got his arms behind him and cuffed him. And he's laying face down on the floor, handcuffed behind his back. I let him stay there for a little while and made sure he calmed down. And uh, then I unhandcuffed him. And to be perfectly honest with you, I think I freaked him out a little bit. And then he said, uh, you know, a very unique thing. He said, and I'll quote, he goes, you're the only one that not only got out of the handcuffs, you got them on me. Maybe. Hey, Don DeMarco. Don DeMarco. Those wrestling He went from Antonucci to Wantonucci right there. <laughs> w for him. Be part of my calm response to it was that at that point I had a very optimistic view of humanity. He could have done something to overpower me and, and continue on, but he didn't. And I, I thank God for that, certainly. He gets this in his mind to do this, and he's going to, you know, uh, rape you and kill you and all these kind of things. And then something happens that snaps him back to, you know, the more normal personality. I suppose in retrospect, getting out of the handcuffs, the first thing I should have done is just run like hell. Now, remember, guys, keep in mind, right? We know that John Gacy's a crazy, deranged, homosexual serial killer, but... He didn't know that. Remember, guys, this was happening in 76. This was well before anyone went missing. There was any type of police reporting that he was out here killing people. So in his head, he just thinks it's my crazy boss that is acting like a fucking weirdo trying to put handcuffs on me. He didn't know that he was a serial killer at this time, which is why he unhandcuffed him and tell him, hey, you done? Blah, 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 etc. Because he didn't know what John Gacy was doing at this time yet. Okay, guys, we know, right, 2020 hindsight, but back then he didn't know. He's just thinking his boss is getting drunk and a horny weirdo, but um, if I guarantee you, if he had known that this guy was doing all this crazy shit back then, he would have probably called the police, went to the police, etc. But he didn't know all this guys at the time. Oh, hold on, let me pull the dock back up. A lot of the early witnesses had already testified by the time I got there on the 25th of February. And all right, so we're gonna fast forward guys here to the verdict, okay? Um and that has now reached a decision in the trial of John Wayne Gacy, accused of killing thirty-three young men and boys. And we do not know what that verdict is because they are calling both sides back into the courtroom now. We've been a trial and jury selection for seven weeks, six weeks of trial. So, so they're on trial for a month and a half, guys. 
And real quick, just want to give you guys a Don DeMarco in the chat. Because uh, we got 3,100 of you guys watching right now on YouTube alone. And then we got another two or 300 of you guys watching on, on Twitch. And we got 3.1K likes on YouTube. So thank you so much. We're pretty much 100% engaged on YouTube. So let's continue this bad boy. Two hours was pretty quick. Oh, so they only deliberated for two hours. Normally, this is a bad sign. But let's see what happens. When a jury comes back fast, the rule of thumb is that it's a not guilty. So I was pretty terrified when we walked back to the courtroom. And of course, when they actually read the verdict, uh, I mean, that's just the best. It took the jury of seven men and five women less than two hours to find... Hey, W fucking jury. Gacy is guilty of 33 deaths. John Wayne Gacy, guilty of murdering 33 young men. Gacy was convicted of murdering more people than anyone else in U.S. history. In the end, the prosecutors managed to prove that Gacy did so many things to try and cover up what he did, that he was so careful and so calculating about it that he was absolutely sane. It was an emotional time. Yeah, because what Gacy tried to do, guys, during trial was what he tried. He tried to plead insanity. Right. And it didn't work because they were able to demonstrate, yo, you took all these deliberate steps to conceal your criminal activity. Therefore, you are not insane. So one more time, W, for them being able to come back in only two hours with a guilty verdict on 33 different murders. And for relatives of the victims and many like Ken Peace, whose brother was killed, want revenge. There's only one solution now. What is that? I want him to see him go the chair. And Eugenia Gotzik, mother of another victim, tearfully agreed. I hope he does get the electric chair. Then it'll make everybody feel better. I'm sure it'll make the other mothers feel better, too. I remember saying, thank God. And it's not over yet. There will now be another hearing, and this same jury will begin deliberating once again. This time, they will deliberate on whether John Wayne Gacy should be put to death in the electric chair. Throughout the trial, there had been constant references to a Jekyll and Hyde kind of syndrome, where because of pills or alcohol, Gacy became this brutal killer, much like uh, the kindly Dr. Jekyll uh, became the brutal Mr. Hyde. So I actually got the Robert Louis Stevenson book and I read it again. And so one of the things I did in the argument, so I said, you know, they keep talking about Jekyll and Hyde. I said, I don't know if you read it, but what you learned is that the goodly, kind Dr. Jekyll wanted to study evil. So he invented a potion that he could take that would expose that evil. And he became the evil Mr. Hyde and committed these horrible crimes. He took the potion on purpose because he wanted to know what he was doing when he did it. Bam. He ain't insane. And he remembered what he did after he did it. And guess what, folks? He enjoyed it. And he did it again. And he did it again. And he did it again. And all he cared about was the godlike decision of who would live and who would die. And John Gacy made that same decision. 
Robert Louis Stevenson always had a moral at the end of the story. And he used to enjoy killing the people, and he got like a a sexual thrill from it, guys. You know, I mean, and this is a lot of the times where a lot of serial killers, um, homicides come from is them being able to enjoy some kind of strange uh, fantasy. I mean, it was the same way with Jeffrey Dahmer. Like, these guys got sexual elation from doing this stuff. Um, you know, it's sick and reprehensible, but, you know, this is why this is why these guys become infamous because not many people are capable of doing this crazy stuff, you know? Sure. And the villain and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde paid for his crimes with his life. Bam. So uh, now, now we're going to fast forward, guys, to his execution, okay? Um, which was on May 10th, right? While he was in prison, he did a lot of paintings, sold them for money, etc. They became collector's items. But we're not going to necessarily go over that. His last appeal was rejected. I remember him. So he had, he had appealed a bunch of times, guys, while he was on death row to try to live longer. Um, and they kept rejecting it for obvious reasons. Uh, that he was saying, or they were, they were just like, they were using anything they could. They were saying like, yo, we need to figure out these paintings or yo, he wasn't in town. Uh, sometimes wearing some of these people were murdered. We have receipts that document that he was actually out of the state of Illinois when um, some of these men were murdered, etc. Yeah. So those were some of the grounds that they used to argue uh, the death uh, against his death. Yeah. Kind of waving me away saying, we'll talk about it later <laughs> as if there was going to be a later. <laughs> um, he may have already come to grips with it in his own mind that, that the appeal was done. On the May 10th, 1994. So this was his execution day, guys. And uh, just so you guys know, there was a scene. Uh, I, I suggest you guys all watch it. I thought it was really well done on the Dahmer Netflix documentary on, I think it was the last episode where um, they document on this day, May 10th, 1994, Jeffrey Dahmer actually ends up getting baptized while um, John Wayne Gacy is being executed by lethal injection. Um, and they actually, in, in one of the, uh, in that episode, they actually show uh, Gacy killing an individual, which is a very, it's a very dark um, part of the, of the document of the, um, of the Netflix series, which I suggest you go see. It was actually very well done. I got to give credit to uh, the producers that made that Dahmer Netflix series. But on that episode, for some of you guys that saw it, it was wild where they show a, a, a scene uh, with um, Gacy killing someone. But at the end, um, he ends up being killed on the same day that Dahmer gets baptized. And on that day, interestingly enough, was also an eclipse. So very, very strange. Night of the execution, I was on the phone with him several times. And at about 11.45, we're talking, and he, I hear mumbling, and he goes... Okay, my ride's here. Gotta go. And that was our last conversation. Kill him! Kill him! Kill him! I was there. Look at the people. They didn't give a shit. Kill him! Kill him! That night. The clown's gotta go. See you now. <laughs> it was an event. Gacy's execution was an event. It's time to die. 14 years has been much too long. There were people from both sides. Yeah, remember, guys, he got convicted in 1980. They didn't actually get around to killing him until 1994. Pro-death penalty, against death penalty. There were lines of people, miles of people, protesting and kill the clown. The clown goes down! The clown goes down. <laughs> oh, my God. 
And frankly, that was upsetting because if a government is going to take the life of somebody because they've committed a horrendous crime, then it should be something of awe. It should be a calm, solemn event. It shouldn't. Well, with all due respect, lady, uh, did John Wayne Gacy kill them solemnly in a calm fashion? No, these people were (laughs) being strangled while he read Bible verses to them wearing a clown suit and drugging them, raping them, torturing them, etc. So, I mean, I look at it like they they gave him the easy way out with a lethal injection. He got the privilege of picking like his last meal and and everything. Yeah. I mean, actually, you know what? Real quick. Can you Google what I think I know what his last meal was, but I want I want you to read it out to the people real fast. Uh, what his last, I know what his last words were as well, um, which was a very, it's a, it was a basically a three word sentence. He said, kiss my ass was his last words. <laughs> uh, right. But yeah, but that's all I got to say is like, did he get, did he exercise the same level of respect to his victims? He didn't. So oh. <laughs> shout out to the chat saying that they uh, smoke in a Gacy pack. What are you saying? Uh, a dozen deep fried shrimp, uh-huh. a bucket of KFC's original recipe chicken, French oh, fries. <laughs> Uh, French fries, a pound of strawberries, and a bottle of... I have to click the article to see. I have to scroll through the article, but a, okay. a lot of shit food. So KFC, strawberries, fries, anything else? A bottle of Diet Coke. bottle of Diet Coke. Okay, well, why diet, man? Just drink the full calorie shit. I know, right? He's already <laughs> eating KFC. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? It don't matter. Also, you're about to die. Hey, gotta, gotta, gotta watch the figure. Gotta, gotta look good for the funeral. You gotta have a low yes, calorie yes. diet. Yeah. <laughs> Shouldn't be cheering and drums beating. And that's not appropriate for the victims. It's not appropriate for anybody. I disagree. I think they probably want him to see him suffer as much as they could, just like he did to his 33 victims who were all young boys. I was hoping that my mother would be alive because she said, oh, I want to be there. I want to be there. And she couldn't. That was sad. Both of my parents had passed away. My mom did not want him to go to jail and, you know, paint and all that. And that's why I felt I needed to be at the execution. But the sad thing was that none of the family of the victims could be in the auditorium when he was being put to death. They put all the victims in a room in a... In a building that was far away from the press, far away from the execution itself. We were watching it on a TV like the rest of America. In my opinion, they had us locked up so we could only see what they... And this was the guy, remember guys, this is the brother of the guy whose ring was left in John Gacy's house, okay? The ring that they were able to um, match back to the missing person. Uh, This was his brother, uh, John Zick's brother. wanted us see it was like they didn't want they didn't want us there period the first drug is sodium pentothal which which puts you to sleep theoretically if you get an okay these are the drugs that they put in the system to uh for the lethal injection enough of that it can kill you by itself the second drug is a thing called pancurium bromide and that causes your breathing to stop the third drug is the one that stops your heart and it kept getting delayed. You know, the execution itself, they kept delaying, delaying, delaying. We kept saying, well, what's going to happen? They said, oh, they'll call us when it's over. When Gacy was wheeled into the area where he was to be executed, we left the premises. 
and they should have the, the lethal injection haram they should have given him the fucking good old beheading like they do in saudi arabia <laughs> and uh i remember we were watching television and watching what was going on and you know we heard something malfunctioned they closed the curtains when the phone rang they had some complications and then they rang again and they said okay he is now put put to rest and that was it and we all just looked at each other and you get up and you go out it it was it was like bizarre it was very yeah that's not you're not really that's an l right there man l fucking fucking execution damn i miss kfc from big mo yeah you can't eat that shit no more big mo if you do i'll find out strange lady is lucky abdul didn't get the rocks facts See, they should have stoned his ass bro god damn and then I know who I'm go- going to be for Halloween. Fair, uh, are you going to be Pogo the Clown? John Wayne Gacy was pronounced dead at 12.58, two minutes before one o'clock this morning. There will be uh, a-, a lot of questions to be asked yet about how this system worked. They began the injections at 12.40. Yes, never ignore jury duty. It's super important. That's from Lurch 685, especially if it's a big case like this, you guys. You can go to jail, right, if you don't show up to pr- jury yeah, duty? You can, yeah, you can go to jail and or get fined. Pronounced dead for 18 minutes. Um, it malfunctioned, like we said it was going to malfunction, and he was probably suffocated to death. And I think most people probably would say that that was a good result. They said that he probably uh, felt more pain than they had planned on. But I know if my mother was there, she would said, that's not enough. One little bit of pain is not enough. The brother $15 goes, will you cover Hamilton Howard Albert Fish, late 1800s and late early 1900s serial killer? Probably not, but I will probably do Jack the Ripper for y'all. Denny Ace goes, hey, Myron, have you covered Gary Ridgway? If not, that would be a good one. By the way, breath of fresh air. You are on Twitch. Keep doing God's work. Salam. I appreciate that, bro. The reason why I'm on Twitch is because when I do these documentary breakdowns, you never know. They might turn my stream off or whatever. So I just wanted to make sure it was documented somewhere for y'all. Ole was finally getting uh, moist before his execution. Wanted one more time to loan Gacy some life alert snatch. Okay. I attended the execution as an official state witness and signed the certificate of execution. He got a much easier death than any of his victims. In my, facts. my opinion, he got an easier death than he deserved. More facts. I'd spend a couple of hours with him. Uh, That's his sister. Before they stopped visiting hours. I hugged him and I told him, I said, you know, may God open his arms to you. If you're truly sorry, you need to ask him for forgiveness. No, he ain't sorry. And I don't think I even. All right. So we're going to go ahead and fast forward, guys, to um, they reopen the case. okay? Um, because they're trying to look for. Remember, they only identified 22 bodies. Uh, at the time that they uh, that they found um, the people in the crawl space, and also I want to let you guys know as well um, that uh, when they were excavating right the the home and they were doing the search warrant, they were pu- they were pulling out bodies. Guys, almost every day they were pulling out between one to four bodies wow. over uh, a period of multiple days. It was wild, which is why you know it hit national news and it hit the main headlines, etc. So, um. You know, back then, this was a big deal, guys. All right. So um, now we're going to go into um, the last, uh, the, the second to last chapter here, them reopening the investigation to identify more victims. Okay, guys. Uh, and shout out to the police for doing this. 
impression that the Gacy case was clear and closed. The offender was known, was found guilty, and the victims had been identified, clear and closed. But it wasn't, and it wasn't for lack of trying. You know, my predecessors did what they could to identify every last victim. Doctors and dentists matched bones and teeth against medical records and x-rays. The bodies found under John Gacy's house were simply too decomposed to allow any other means of identification. But in the end, there was eight that were never identified, eight forgotten people. So I took that information to the sheriff. Shout out to them for going and trying to get justice for those people that weren't identified. Back in the 70s, everything was dental records. That was the only way you could identify people. Jason. Which, by the way, guys, dental records, their DNA, you know, tests didn't exist back then. Dental records were imperative, which is why you guys should watch my breakdown that I did on um, James Whitey Bolger. James Whitey Bolger used to purposely pull out the victim's teeth when after he killed them so that they wouldn't be able to uh, identify the subjects after the fact when he was running around with the Winter Hill Gang in Boston, uh, killing a bunch of people. All their teeth? Yeah, he would pull out oh, all their teeth. crazy. Yeah, yeah, man. Really, really grotesque stuff. Who is um, this? Uh, John, uh, J- James Whitey Bolger. I've never heard of him. Uh, crime boss out of oh. Boston. The Mafia used to do it too. So, um, so thankfully, you know, John Wayne Gacy wasn't that smart and he thought he would never get caught with his hubris. So they were able to get dental records in this situation. And at this point, DNA became a thing. So they're identifying bodies all the way up to 2021. So let's keep going here. Like the video, by the way, guys. We got 3,200 likes. I know some of y'all might have not liked the video yet. So go ahead and like it if you can. Was adamant that, you know, based on new technologies and DNA, that we could make some headway. The point of any cold case is to bring contemporary investigative methods to an old investigation. We knew that in this case, DNA would be helpful. To start, we needed a biological sample from each victim so we could test it in a lab and see if we could get suitable DNA profiles. So the first thing we had to do was go to the bodies. In June, the sheriff's office exhumed the jawbones of eight unnamed victims buried at a Homewood cemetery. They were originally uh, Evil Boo goes, Myron, do you think Dahmer is remorse, remorseful for his crimes? No, I don't think any of these serial killers are, guys. You know, they're only sad, they're only remorseful that they got caught. They're not remorseful uh, that they killed people. And, and honestly, if they didn't get caught, they would continue to kill people. Originally safe to compare to dental records, but contained enough DNA for four complete profiles. In September, bodies were exhumed from four Chicago area cemeteries and samples were sent to labs at the University of North Texas where additional DNA profiles were extracted. That process got us to where we had, on most of the victims, very good profiles. They were all suitable for comparison to family members of missing persons. And that was really uh, when we launched the investigation to the public. Cook County Sheriff Tom Darth is calling on families who think a loved one may have been a victim of John Wayne Gacy to come forward and offer up a DNA sample. In particular, the Sheriff's Department is looking for relatives of victims who disappeared between 1970 and December 22nd of 1978. Well, right away, the phones and the emails started flowing in. People from all over the country looking for their missing loved one. It was overwhelming. I mean, within a day, you know, we had 70, 80 leads. I never thought it was going to be easy. Uh, what I did think, though, it was going to be relatively straightforward in running it out. 
for the life of me, I had no idea what direction it would take, and I had no idea on how far it would go. Crazy stuff. Yep. One of the first leads to come in was a lead. So they did end up identifying a couple of the people, guys, um, that they weren't able to identify before. Uh, that way, we, you know, we can keep this thing nice and concise. So last thing I want to show you guys is so uh, one of uh, so obviously, as you guys know, this guy who is friends with um, Gacy uh, ended up having some tapes. OK, and. I want to play these tapes for y'all real fast. He ended up having these tapes since um, the late uh, the the eighty, but the late seventies slash early eighties when um, or nineteen eighty in this case before he was executed, John Wayne Gacy. So he ends up revealing uh, the contents of these tapes in this documentary. So uh, let's go ahead and listen to some of the excerpts. And I think it's very important for you guys to listen uh, to Gacy talk about his crimes and you know the chilling uh, way he speaks of such crimes. So we listened to them. What did you do with them? Throw them downstairs in the basement. Throw them down there? Just throw them down in the crawl space. It's Gacy confessing and mostly saying, yeah, I did that. I don't know why. In other words, all the ones you remember seem to be in the house itself. Yeah. There is this other person who I think is this lawyer. Those last few were killed in the house. I think all the ones you remember were found dead or killed in the house. Or the garage. Killed in the garage? Yeah. Why were the last few dumped in a river as opposed to being buried? I don't know. Is homosexuality a common factor in prolific serial killer cases? Uh, I mean, some, you know, not all. Uh, can you take that down real quick? Okay. So he goes, so he asked him why. Here, let me rewind a little bit so y'all don't, don't miss. We're at 419. you remember she to be in the house itself. Yeah. There is this other person who I think is this lawyer. Those last few were killed in the house. I think all the ones you remember were found dead or killed in the house. Or the garage. Killed in the garage? Yeah. Why were the last few dumped in a river as opposed to being buried? I don't know. It is easier. This is probably in early 79, while he was still like nervous. You can hear that in his voice. He's not in control, he's upset. I think I killed him, but I don't know. You mean you think you killed Well, he was dead. I think I killed him, I don't know. Guys, like. You can see the lack of accountability, the yeah. lack of wanting to take responsibility. Like, well, how else are they going to be dead, bro? Like, what the hell? You know, like, so, seriously. So he was just what? like, uh, they're dead. I guess they're mine. Yeah. What the like, fuck? Is that basically what he was saying? Yeah, essentially. It's like, how the hell did they die? You know? So, yeah. you know, it gives you a little bit of insight as to what where this guy's mind was at. I don't quite understand why he gave them to me, but... I mean, these tapes, he knew what was on them. He had to have. There, there, there is one guy I remember taking out of the house and throwing around the fourth position. 
That was two years ago. Took him out of the house? Yeah, man, put him in the woods. Where the hell does that hit me now? Bury him in the woods? No, I didn't bury him. Just laid him in the woods. They just took him out in the woods. In, 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 woods. Over by Main Township High School. He took him out of your house. Yeah, he was in my house. He was convicted of 33 murders, but there were many missing persons or murders that happened during John's active period that could have been his work. There's no reason to think that John only killed 33 victims. He had a pattern, he had a success rate, and he was prolific in everything he did. Yeah, guys, so um, clearly, you know, there's probably other victims out there that haven't been identified. Um, because like I said before, he preyed on people that, you know, didn't necessarily have strong family structures, were runaways, prostitutes, guys that were, you know, dealing with some maybe financial issues, family issues, and he preyed on them, just like Jeffrey Dahmer did. Uh, Trilla Sendbox, you should do a video on Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker case. I will be doing that as well in the future, guys, so don't worry. Um, but yeah, man, I hope you guys enjoyed that, man. Um, Mia, you got anything for the people? Last thoughts here? Uh, do you know if, is there any sort of conspiracy around him getting out of prison early? Because being a cook or good behavior, like, cannot get you that many years off of jail. Like, you can get maybe two years off, but he got a lot of time off. Yeah. Um. I Well, back then, they didn't, like, take parole and, you know, that type of thing seriously. So, mm. like, that's why they let him out, even though he... um clearly was not fit to go back into society, but you know, it was, it was the, it was the sixties. It was a different era. Yeah. You know, they, they didn't take mental health seriously at all. So they're like, ah, oh, well, yeah, yeah, he'll figure it out. It is what it is, you know? So, um, back then it was just very primitive. Yeah. So Damn. that's kind of what it is. And you know, there's a bunch of conspiracy theories too, that, you know, there's no way that he could have executed these murders himself. And, you know, there were people that were working on snuff films and there was a big conspiracy or whatever, but, from what we know, right, from, you know, the evidence that they have, it's very clear that, you know, your boy Gacy was involved in at least Definitely. 33 murders of uh, young men uh, between the ages of 14 all the way up to 20. Uh, 26 were buried in his house. Another five were dumped into the um, this Plains River. Um, now he's even admitting to people potentially being in the forest. So I honestly think that he probably had more than just 33 victims. It's just that that's probably what he admitted to and what the police were able to um, identify. But um, yeah, man, I mean, it, wild stuff, wild stuff. So crazy. Yeah. What a little bit of like a confusion and uh, daddy issues yeah. <laughs> and bad genetics will do to you. Absolutely. So uh, yeah, guys, I hope you guys enjoyed this documentary, man. I hope you guys enjoyed this uh, reaction. They didn't take the the stream down, which is awesome. Right. So shout out to that. But yeah, man. Any of the, anything else, got? Let's see here. I don't think I have any more chats here. Uh, and we went for three hours and twenty yeah. minutes. Goddamn, man! Fucking Donna Marco. For that. You guys stick with me so long. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed that one. Give me, give me ones in the chat if you guys enjoyed this. If you guys want me to do more breakdowns on serial killers? Give me ones in the chat if you guys like this stuff. Um, we still got three thousand y'all in here. Like the video if you haven't already. Yeah, a bunch of ones. Awesome, awesome, great. So uh, tomorrow, guys, we're going to be doing uh, Fresh and Fit uh, Money Monday. We're going to have uh, a special guest in the house, uh, former detective, now turned entrepreneur. 
It's going to be a great episode. And then we'll have a nighttime show for y'all. And I will drop a documentary uh, video on Thursday. As usual for you guys, I'm going to cover um, Bin Laden, how the CIA found him, and what they found in his house. That's going to be a little bit of a longer breakdown as well. Um, but other than that, man, love you guys. Uh, Mia, where can people find you? Uh, Mia Lily 01X on Instagram. Nice. Send your dick pics there, guys. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Love you guys. We'll catch you over here tomorrow, 7 p.m. for Fresh and Fit. Later. Take it easy, guys. I was a special agent with Homeland Security Investigations, okay, guys? HSI. The cases that I did mostly were human smuggling and drug trafficking. No one else has these documents, by the way. Here's what FedEx covers. Dr. Lafredo confirmed lacerations due to stepping on glass. Murder investigation. I'm reaching in his jacket. You don't know. And he's positioning. Been on February 13, 2019. You're facing two counts of premeditated murder. Racketeering and Rico conspiracy. Young slime life here and after referred to as YSL. The defendants is, uh, six nine. And then this is Billy Seiko right here. Now, when they first started, guys, six nine ran. I'm a fed. I'm watching this music video. You know, I'm bobbing my head like, hey, this shit lit. But at the same time, I'm pausing. Oh, wait, who this? Right? Oh, who's that in the back? Firearms and violent crimes. A.K.A. Pushaisi violated. In order to stay away from the victim. After Pushaisi arrested after shooting at King of Diamonds, Miami Strip Club, injured one person. This is the one that's going to fuck him up because this gun is not traceable. Well, it happened at the gun range. Here's your boy, 42 Doug, right here on the left. Okay. Sex trafficking and sex crimes. They can effectively link him to paying an underage girl. I'm going to lock my foot and well, the first bomb went off right here. Inspired by Al Qaeda. Two terrorists, their brothers, the Zokar Sarnev and Tamer Lin Sarnev. When the cartel shipped drugs into the country. As this guy got arrested for um, espionage, okay, trading secrets with the Russians for monetary compensation. The largest corrupt police bust in New Orleans history. The days of the police are gone. So he was in this bad boy.